Hello and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 102nd episode, our returning guest is Jonathan Fowler. You first heard Jonathan Fowler on episodes 2, 10, 20, 21, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35, 43, 48, 51, 56, 64, 74, 83, 92, and episode 82, also featuring fellow regular guest Ash Burgess of the podcast. Jonathan graduated with a BA in history from Indiana University in 2006. He is an unabashed left-wing political junkie. He has lived and worked in South Korea for over 10 years, trying to help the citizens of that great nation hopefully talk pretty one day. And if you haven't started reading Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House, consider this your official warning to start now. This episode is the first in a series in which Jonathan and I will break down the entire book. And now, on to the show. Hello? Hey, Cha. Hey, what's up, Bob? Hey, are you still uh, still up for recording? Yeah, I can record, yeah. Cool. Yeah, let me, let me get the book going here. Yeah, so the, the fire and the fury. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think I think it's a good call on, on your part, though. This is a two-part uh, episode, because uh, I definitely think there's enough to talk about. <laughs> Over two parts. Yeah, we could say this is a, the first uh, the first episode of the Rob Burgess uh, Books and Reading Club. <laughs> so read along with us, and you'll uh, be able to find more to appreciate when we're talking about these things, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess we'll have to get back to the Bill O'Reilly situation, because that was going to be the first incarnation of our book club, but this will have to do for now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a good chance that some portion of our audience has already read the book. I mean, it's like it's already a New York Times bestseller, isn't it? Uh, I think it was, yeah, number one. It was, uh, I think it's over a million sold at this point, and I think it debuted at number one because uh, there was a restraining order that was attempted to be put on it uh, before it was even published, so. Yeah. Yeah, so that actually made it probably more enticing for people to read, so. Yeah. That's like he didn't want to be president, and he, he failed and became president. Yeah. He didn't want this book to be published, and he failed, and it was published, and it did better. <laughs> like, he didn't want the porn star to talk about the relationship, but he forgot to sign the restraining order. Yeah, you mean whatever. You mean Mr. Dennison <laughs> forgot to sign? Yeah, yeah. That's why. I don't know. This guy, he, he fails at everything. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm yeah, I'm settling down here with my book as well. And I've got to warn you, I've made a lot of uh, a lot of notes. So mm-hmm. Lots to talk about here. Uh, so I'm looking through the uh, chapter list here, and I think I've done I've gotten all the way through chapter 11, I think. So that actually works out because there's 22 chapters here. So um, I figure if you just want to talk through the first 11 chapters, we can do that. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at it now, and I've yeah. I've gotten through I think I think chapter 12. Uh, where they talk about repeal and replace Obamacare. By the way, the book we're talking about is Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House by Michael Wolff. Mm-hmm. By the Henry Holton Company uh, publishing group, I guess. Yeah. Well, they, they sent a letter after that uh, restraining order saying there is nothing to apologize for and we're going to be publishing it now. So. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty. Yeah, it's a pretty good, pretty good read. I would say. I think the guy's a good writer. Basically, I mean, mm-hmm. there were a couple of places I think that I noticed some typos. Yes, I noticed those too. But I think it was kind of rushed out, also. So I'm I'm sure maybe the uh, speed with which it was published had something to do with that. So yeah, it's just it's just really weird though when you're like, okay, like <clears throat> I'm on page what three in the prologue where they mm-hmm. took prologue Ailes and Bannon, and where is it here on page? Wait, maybe I'm no no. Wait a minute, let me look here. I, I, yeah, I found a I found a typo pretty early on. I think is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on page three, um, uh, in the what can we say? The fourth paragraph, last sentence. It says, "This was the job." And a week later, <laughs> I think they I think the word that should have been there was "took." I think this is the job that Bannon took a week later. Mm-hmm. So, like already on page three, <laughs> basically in the prologue, basically. They've already got a typo. It's like, man, I mean, you don't have to go through the whole book to find every typo, but surely in the first, you know, prologue, you can find the typo. So Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, so I, I think it's probably good to mention the author here because, like, he definitely has a certain, like, he's very readable. Um, I think I mentioned that to you. I also like how he kind of mixes in little words and phrases that I don't know that, you know, I have to look up. So I've been learning a lot of little, uh, you know, uh, terminology just reading this book here. So that's been fun. Um I don't think he's a super ethical guy, but I think that may be why he was able to get where he was access-wise, because, you know, he says certain things are off the record, and then they turn out not to be, and apparently he's had a problem in the past of of fabricating quotes or or kind of, uh, you know, uh, compositing things and just saying as they happened and and not actually saying that it's like a couple different things mixed together. So I don't know. What do you think of the veracity of the author here? I think he's as um, truthful as he needs to be, I would say. I mean, like, when you're covering this subject matter and these people, yeah, number one, I think an ethical person wouldn't get anywhere near them. <laughs> and number two, I mean, this is really what they deserve. You know, yeah. this, is, this is the coverage that they deserve. They, they've, they've earned every, you know, every potentially misattributed quote or anything like that. <laughs> you know, some people would say, we have to be better than them. No, we don't. <laughs> you got to get on their level. Exactly. And I think his, like, general, um, you know, conclusions about, you know, people and, and, and whatever in the book is generally correct. So even if I, you know, as a journalist would quibble with, wow, he got it, I'm also, like, not somebody that would get, like you said, anywhere near this White House. So, um, you know. Like I think to yeah. to get in this group, he probably had to to make certain you know compromises, but it did allow him some pretty interesting access. So, but yeah, yeah. Well, he's you know he seemed to. I mean, he was all over the. I mean, when this thing was being published or whatever at the beginning, he was all over TV for a week or two there. Mm-hmm. And then there were some you know there were some blowups or something. Like at one point, Mika Brzezinski just started yelling at him for <laughs> insinuating that I forget if it was Hope Hicks or that woman from South Carolina. Uh, Nikki Haley? I thought it was Nikki Haley because I saw that clip on uh, Real Time with Bill Maher when he was interviewed and I'm sure I'll go back and insert that here. But But first up, oh wow, he wrote the book that President Trump didn't want you to buy, so you did. The author of Fire and Fury inside the Trump White House, Michael Wolf. Michael, how you doing? 
Great to see you. Wow. Look at that. Well, you have done the impossible. You have made America read again. You know, if it's, if it's a book that brings down this presidency, I'm going to bow to the god of irony. Well, it... it <laughs> uh, but with all due respect, it's a great, fun book to read, but it's not bringing him down. His popularity has not gone down one bit. His base wouldn't read it. The people who read it already hate him, but it's fun. Uh... <laughs> And it's informative. You just can't move these people. That's the thing. But, and I know you've been out talking about it all. I want you to tell me something that the other people have not noticed in this book. Is there something that you think, boy, why don't they ask me about this that I put in there that they're not talking about? There is, but I can't tell you what it is. So well, there is something... fuck you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Teasing us like that. There is something in the, in the book that I... Oh, was absolutely sure of, but it was so incendiary that that I just didn't have the 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 ultimate well, proof. God, the, considering the, what he's done, what is it a woman thing? Well, I, yeah, I didn't have the blue dress. Um, now, is it about a woman? It is. Oh, it is. It is. Oh, it's somebody he's fucking now. It is. Oh, and it's who, who is he? You fucking? just have to read oh, between please. the lines. What lines? Tell us the lines. <laughs> you say it's in the book. It's toward the end of the book. Okay, well, it's in the book, then we go... Yeah, you just, you just have to... F You'll know it. I'll now, know it. Now oh. that I've told you, when, okay. you, when you hit that paragraph, but, you're going to say, all right. bingo. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to make the joke I was going to make. Uh, Okay, so listen, um, the womanizing thing, though, you do have a lot about it in the book. I mean, the, the, that I found fascinating, that you were basically saying that this is sort of the point of Trump's whole life. You, I love the way you say, you know, the empire, the, it really was a boutique industry, kind of. He really didn't do anything all day. The whole point of his existence was chasing tail 24-7. 24-7. That was it. That is the he's in, the man. I am an old-fashioned playboy. That's the kind of thing that he says, and he says it proudly. Yeah, and I always thought I may have said it last year on the show. I thought one of the biggest adjustments for him was when he moves into the White House. He can't play the you know when it was uh, Melania. I'll be home at eight, and then he, he has hotels. You know, he goes to golf tournaments. We see he has all these places where he can get together with his mistresses. That's hard to do in the White House. That's probably why he's so pissed off all the time. <laughs> I, I Except now he's I mean, got. Yes, uh, I mean there's. Yeah, he's got. Uh, there, are, there are back doors. Damn, there are back doors and back doors. There are back doors. Oh, it's a gay liaison. You know, listen. I didn't think of that. <laughs> Sean Spicer. If I can get into the White House. You know, porn right. stars okay. can now, get into the White House. Now, this is the other thing that's so fascinating about your book. Besides what's in the book, just the fact that you were able to hang out, hang out, like it's a, a dorm room. Like, you know, just, this is the White House. That just blew my mind that people weren't saying, who's this guy? Why is he here every day? What's, he's listening to us. Every day I waited for someone to notice me, say, please get out, but they don't. They actually do the other thing. They sort of say, oh, hey, come, come, let's, let's talk. Uh, and, and what do you attribute this to? I, I attribute to Donald Trump. 
This is like... Uh, he said, okay, he liked you because you were a New Yorker. Well, he sort of there knew. is... He gave the first approval. I said, I'd like to come, you know, come down and, and observe. Right. And then he thought I was asking for a job. I said, no, 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 no. I said, I want to write a book. And he said, you just saw he was deflated book. Why, why would you want to do that? Um, but then it was kind of like, okay, yeah. And what was the title? Break you had a, you didn't call it Fire and Fury when you were talking to them, right? It was like the, tr the, the grand tr transition or something. Yes, the great transition. The great, tra of course. That's funny, you know, when Larry Charles and I were making my documentary Religious, we didn't call it that. We, we called it A Spiritual Journey. <laughs> and then... They let us interview them in the church. It's now, I told Trump, he said, you know, I said, I'm going to call the book The Great Transition, The First Hundred Days. Right. He said, a boring title. Right. Oh, <laughs> right. So the other thing that where you actually had an impact is because of the book, there was a lot of talk about maybe he's just flat out batshit nuts. People were diagnosing. I mean, there was talk about that before, but it reached a fever pitch to the point where he thought that we had his physical last week that he also asked to take a cognitive test and then bragged about how great he did, even though it was a test that it's the kind of test they give an old lady when she's wandering down the middle of the highway in her <laughs> underpants. It's, it, it's, it's also you can get the test on the Internet so you can get the questions beforehand. It's, it's 30 questions. The first four are, what month is it? What day is it? What year is it? What city are you in? And who's the president of the United States? Yeah, well, it's... <laughs> <laughs> but he aced it. Okay. So, uh, you know, it goes up, your book goes up to the point where John Kelly takes over. Okay, so that is the big watershed moment. But this week, now he's apparently feuding, as I referred to in the monologue, to, with John Kelly, because Kelly committed the ultimate faux pas, and he criticized Trump on TV or inferred that he was not perfect. Uh, what do you make of this? And, and apparently I read now that John Kelly threatens to quit all the time. That's the only way you can get Trump's attention? Everybody tries to quit. The whole operation... <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, it's, it's like, how, how, do, how do I get out of here? Uh, so, so, why does he still command so much loyalty? He's been so rotten and said rotten things to just about everybody, and all I see is month after month, Republicans not fighting him more, lining up behind him more, lying for him. What do you attribute that to? Well, I mean, I think the loyalty thing, my book is sort of an, the example that, that these are the most disloyal, loyal people um, uh, who ever, ever existed. Um, but, but also the Republicans, well, you know, there was, you know, Mitch McConnell said, this was er early on, he will sign anything we put in front of him. So he just becomes, for everyone in some way, a useful fool. Now... The problem with that is he's the useful fool, but then he goes wacko and um, <laughs> says something which destroys everybody's plans to use him. So, well, what are you in? What are you in awe of with him? I'm not, not saying admire. There's nothing I admire about him, but there are things about him that I am in awe of, I like the size of his balls. <laughs> Aren't you just in awe of the size of his balls? <laughs> 
you know, come on. I, I mean, I am in awe that that there is actually someone who can go through life, reach the age of what is it, seventy-one right. now, and still act like he should get what he wants when he wants without anyone saying otherwise. Demand, well, demand, demand. His, because everything is so unfair. His favorite word is unfair. He's the luckiest guy in the world, and he's got this chip on his shoulder. That's, that's what I understand, that his or, whole attitude is, when will white men born to great wealth finally catch a break in America? <laughs> that, <laughs> anyway. Uh, or he is, as everyone, I, in, literally 100% of the people around him, always return to saying, well, he's like a child. Right. And sometimes he's a 16-year-old, he's like a 16-year-old child, or an 11-year-old, or a 2-year-old. I noticed now on Fox and Friends, they talk to him directly like they used to on Romper Room. <laughs> I see Donald. It's the funnest book I've read in a long time. I just hope the world stays where it is. Thank you so much, Thank Michael you. Wolf. Great job. Michael Wolf, everybody. And um, that was, you know, uh, he, he said it without saying it, basically, that she had gotten her position because she had uh, capitulated to his advances, basically. So, and now he's kind of like, did, <laughs> did you <laughs> that one clip of him on Australian TV pretending not to hear his earpiece when he was asked about this? This is a follow up question. <laughs> You said during a TV interview just last month that you are absolutely sure that Donald Trump is currently having an affair while president behind the back of the First Lady. And I repeat, you said you were absolutely sure. Hold, hold, just I, last week, yeah, however, you backflipped and I, said, I quote, I do not know if the president is having an affair. Do you owe the president and the First Lady an apology, Mr Wolf? I, I can't hear you. Just last month, you Hello? said you were absolutely sure that the president was having an affair, and now you say I'm, that I'm he not is not. Getting, I'm not getting anything. You're not hearing me, Mr. Wolf. No, I'm not getting anything. We were hearing each other no. well just before. You're not hearing I'm me, not Mr. Wolf. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you hear? I'm I'm not. Mr. I'm Wolf not hearing was hearing anything. me before, but he's not hearing me anymore. So I'm it not looks hearing like anything. Oh, okay. The interview may be over. Uh, Michael Wolf's book, Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House, is out now, and he is about to take off on a speaking tour. So I think we will leave it there. Gee, that was an unfortunate oh. question to miss, wasn't it? Mm. Gold. I think he might have heard it. I think he did. He was going to say he no. He absolutely did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, he might answer it some other time. Perhaps by fax he could send you a message. Mm. It reminded me of Rose Porteous, who once uh, was yeah. interviewed by Mike Munro, and he was saying, you can hear me. And she said, he's saying that I can hear him, yes. while mm. claiming she couldn't hear him anyway. <laughs> For, I mean, did you see the Brzezinski clip? I, I didn't see it, but I know what happened. He got kicked off the set, right? Yeah, she just started yelling at him for, like, attacking women. It was kind of like one of those Me Too things and stuff. And, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. Um, you made some news this weekend uh, talking about things you didn't know firsthand, saying you believed it was true, but you had no proof that the president had an affair with someone in his administration. He, yes. It's pretty much what you said. Then you yes. kind of led and indicated if you follow the breadcrumbs, you can figure out who it was. 
after a lot of rumors came out, you know, it was speculation that you met Nikki Haley and you said she's embraced it. Don't you find that absolutely irresponsible at this point in time where we are as a society when you're talking about a woman who's a high-profile woman in the well, Trump administration let me, let me, let me to go after her without any evidence, without any facts? It just seems that it is so irresponsible. Well, first thing, I didn't go after her. And secondly, what I... Um, what I certainly what I meant was I found it puzzling that she would deny something she was not accused of. Wait a minute. Can I just step in here? Let's let's put this next question. Uh, the entire credibility of your book, which was written really quickly. Excuse you, me. Your book. Yes. Uh, let's 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 put it on this next question. Mm -hmm. Do you regret inferring anything about Nikki Haley? I, I, I didn't infer anything about Nikki Haley. What I inferred was that the president is, um, um, is that m many of the people around the president believe he is still involved with various women. No, but you said she spent a lot Hold of time in private time with... I totally, I totally, uh, I mean, that's exactly what people report. And now, and specifically, that was about her bid to become the Secretary of State. So everywhere in the White House, okay. they were suddenly in a... In, a, in, in, in quite a panic that this was actually happening, Michael, which is why they pushed Pompeo she out. Michael, has embraced it. Um, I, I'm going to go as far as to say that you might be having a fun time playing a little game, dancing around this, but you're slurring a woman. It's disgraceful. It's, and, and um, Mika, again, she has been accused of nothing. She has decided to deny what she has not been accused of. Right. Certainly, I didn't accuse her of this. Mm -hmm. Wait, are you, are, you I, suggesting I, you that, are you suggesting that the language is not uh, ambiguous in any way in the, the things that you've said and the way you've Come on. stated it? Are, are you kidding? You're on the set of Morning Joe. We don't BS here. Well, I, what's, read me the language. Tell, Are tell, you kidding me? I'm I, not reading well, you anything. Play the Bill Maher if you don't get it, if you don't get <laughs> yeah, what we're the, talking the, about, I, I, I'm sorry. This is, this is this awkward. Is... You're here on the set with us, but we're done. Michael Wolf, thank you. We're going to go to break now. Bye, everyone. We'll be right back. I don't know. I, I was kind of surprised in reading the book, and I'm sure we'll get there, but how chummy the Joe Scarborough, Mika Brzezinski, uh, you know, side of that was with Trump before he, you know, had the, you know, turning on them and, and insulting her like plastic surgery or whatever. <laughs> Didn't he also spill the beans about how they're like, we were in a relationship? Like, wasn't that also something he broke open? Yeah, he said something. He had a tweet, something about like, um, you know, like Morning Joe, whose ratings ratings are terrible, and his neurotic girlfriend Mika. More on that later after this all dies down. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, assuring that it's not going to die down. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think he. I mean, he blew up. A, he blew up a lot of people's spots in that campaign. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, publicly. You know, what was his name? Uh, uh, the South Carolina, another South Carolina guy. South Carolina has been through a storm with this guy, uh, mm -hmm. Lindsey Garland, with his phone number. He's like, Lindsey gave me his phone number for a long time, so I don't know. I think I can give it to you. You think I can give it to you? Oh, yeah. was this Lindsey Graham during the campaign when he read his uh, cell phone number? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Edit that out. Lindsey Garland is somebody I knew from middle school. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Lindsey Graham. She might be Carolina. next. You never know. You never know. <laughs> yeah, Lindsey Graham. Okay, Lindsey Graham. Yeah, it was Lindsey G from the Carolinas. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So he, yeah, he gave out his phone number and everything. Mm -hmm.
So Lindsey Graham says to me, please, please, whatever you can do. You know what I'm saying? I said, what's this guy, a beggar? He's like begging me to help him with Fox and Friends. So I say, okay, and I'll mention your name. He said, could you mention my name? I said, yes, I'll mention. And he gave me his number, and I found the card. It, I wrote the number down. I don't know if it's the right number. Let's try it. 202. 228-0292. I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, it's three, four years ago, so maybe it's an old number. 202-228-0292. So, I don't know. Give it a shot. Your local politician, you know? He won't fix anything, but at least he'll talk to you. I mean, the remarkable thing is, like, I mean, I think when it comes across in the book just at some points, too, is, like, to what degree people can be in his good graces, out of his good graces, and then back in his good graces again, you know, mm-hmm. just very fluidly, you know, just depending on how he feels about them and what they, you know, what the last thing they said about him was, or, you know, just kind of like, did they, did they, did they kiss the ring? Did they kneel to the king or whatever? Mm-hmm. Then, okay, they're all good and their ratings are great, but otherwise their ratings are a disaster and they're going to be taken off the air pretty soon. And, yeah, know. yeah, exactly. It's like, I think they even had a quote about this in the book. It's either like over the top flattery or, or like every, like, insult that you can think of about someone it's it's there's no in between so but yeah well um i mean one of my concerns is i mean and you know this is not maybe going to be a traditional book review in that uh i've done extensive uh underlining and the thing is it's so extensive that there was no real way to prepare it Mm-hmm. You know, for the way you might normally talk about themes or something like that, it's it's really just going to be a from the beginning to the to the end type of thing. And ethically, I don't know how that works with like you know extensive quotes from a book. I mean, how you know how much you're able to get away with, or if there isn't any limit really, as long as you're not reading the whole book, basically. So I think you know we're in a you know journalism you know analytical mode right now, so I think that's fine. I don't think there's any problem. You know, I think that's fair use. Okay, I'm a little drunk. No <laughs> I might edit that out, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just swerving all over okay. copyright law here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> move, move, uh, FCC, get out the way. Exactly. FCC is not the one, I think. But, okay, so speaking of drinking, I'm, I'm on page four here. Okay. And about halfway down the page, they say... Bannon was pushing a preferred drink out of the a preferred glass of wine away. He said, I don't drink. Mm-hmm. I was a little surprised by that. I was like, uh, Bannon doesn't drink. Or maybe he quit or uh, I don't buy maybe. that, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think he mentions like in the chapter I read, one of the more recent chapters, they mentioned that Bannon's affect might've been a result of a lack of sleep because he was like really paranoid staying awake 18 or 19 hours a day. You know, mm-hmm. just worried that people were working against him inside the White House and stuff. And so he was just not getting a lot of sleep, and that kind of like made him look worse than he already did. So I don't know. I I don't buy that. But I, I, that's another thing about this book is I feel like that this the, the subtitle of this book could almost be as told by Steve Bannon. You know, like because I feel like he probably was the most. Uh, most quoted person, even if the quotes don't show up directly in the book, I feel like a lot of this is from the perspective of Steve Bannon. Um, at least that's that's the way I've kind of gotten the sense I've gotten from reading this book is that Steve Bannon's voice is very present, more present than most. 
Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I feel like I think he does a pretty good job of balancing between, um, you know, between the two sides as far as there, I guess there are three sides he outlines mm-hmm. uh, vying for influence in the Trump White House, which is basically the and I'm sure we'll get to this later, but the, uh, uh, you know, the Bannon wing of the, you know, kind of the alt right and then the, uh, you know, the Rance, Rance Priebus, uh, you know, mainstream Republican, mm-hmm. you know, Congress kind of people. And then the Kushner, Jarvanka, he calls them. I don't know. That That's another thing I want to discuss, that nickname, because I hadn't heard it spelled that way before. Yeah, I've, heard, I've heard Javanka for that, but... Was it Javanka or Jarvanka? I could be confused about... What well, he says Jarvanka, but I'm saying when I've heard the squishing of those two names together before, it's always been Javanka. But not that it matters. Maybe it's a Southern or British accent. Who knows? (laughs) Okay. Well, here at the bottom of page four, he says, when you take out all the never Trump guys who signed all those letters, all the neocons who got us in all these wars, it's not a deep bench. So he's talking about, I guess, uh, the people that he was able to get Mm -hmm. for his campaign. Yep. Um, So he, he disqualified a lot of people right off the bat, I guess. Yes. I guess this is talking about staffing to some degree here. Mm -hmm. Um, On the next page, it says, Bolton's mustache is a problem, snorted Bannon. Trump doesn't think he looks the part. You know, Bolton is an acquired taste. And and somebody somebody had said to him, um, Roger Ailes had said to him, well, he got in trouble because he got in a fight in a hotel one night and he chased some woman. And Bannon said, if, if I told Trump that, he might have the job. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stor- Stormy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, that's another thing. That's, that's another thing. Oh, yes. But they even mentioned that later in the book. I'm sure we'll get to this, but it doesn't Bannon at one point say, yeah, how many women did we pay off? Like 100 or something? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, jockey and he's just looking for a horse you know to ride to victory and this was the you know this was his vehicle to get where he wanted to go so yeah i doubt he could have predicted that it would have gone this far but no but i I, yeah i think he's i'm sure he i think everybody is everybody around trump is probably disappointed the way things have gone that they you know probably didn't get the kind of influence that they wanted in a way or as much or consistent or effective. Yeah. Exactly. Um, 
you know, let's see. What, on the next page, they say the real enemy said an on-point Bannon, careful not to defend Trump too much or to diss him at all, was China. China was the first front in a new Cold War, and it had all been misunderstood in the Obama years. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. I think... I think we're, you know, over the past couple of days, it's very clear that we're back into some sort of a Cold War footing with, with Russia. Mm-hmm. Although, who knows whose side Trump's on, but... Mm-hmm. I have a guess. You know, the assassination attempt in, in England, uh, in London there, the the Russian mm-hmm. uh, exchange spy and his daughter who were uh, poisoned in some yeah. of the nerve agent, I believe. Yeah, the echoes um, of uh, Livinenko. The, uh, yeah, the, you know that guy? <laughs> was that 2006? That he mm-hmm. was like, yeah, the the uh, radioactive tea. Yeah. And his tea, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the next page, he says, the White House right now is like Johnson's White House in 1968. And then he later says, I mean, they're running the war with just as much effectiveness as Johnson in 68. Um... I guess this is I guess this is probably Bannon. And towards the end, Roger Ailes says, "I wouldn't nec- I wouldn't give Donald too much to think about." Said an amused Ailes, and Bannon snorted, "Too much, too little doesn't necessarily change things." <laughs> so, even even from the beginning, nobody had much confidence in the guy's abilities. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's been a frustrating thing to watch is that, like, uh, you know, you hear people on background, off the record, after they're kicked out, you know, you've got Omarosa on Big Brother, like, mm-hmm. saying, things are not going to be okay. Dude, you, should, you, like, should, you should be worried. It's like, yeah, we know. <laughs> <laughs> and from the outside, can I tell you as a voter, a citizen, I never got it. Why you went to the, the White House with him? I felt like it was like a call to duty. I felt like I was serving my country, not serving him. Whenever was it accepting a political appointment, it was always about the country. Like, I was haunted by tweets every single day. Like, what is he going to tweet next? Does anybody say to him, what are you doing? I mean, I tried to be that person, and then all of the people around him attacked me. It was like, keep her away from don't give her access. Don't let her talk to him. And it's like, and Baca's there, Jared's there. And it's... Who, who has that power to say what's going on? No. I'm not there. I don't, I, it's not my, it's not my circus, not my monkeys. You know, I'd like to say not my problem, but I can't say that because... Should we be worried? Uh, don't say that. Because uh, we are worried, but I need you to say no, it's going to be okay. Okay, no, it's going to not be okay. It's not. You just tell me things are going to be okay, okay? I can't do that because they're not going to be okay. It's going to be horrible. This is doom and gloom. 
<laughs> yeah. But, I mean, the thing is, like, I mean, this is really, I th- I've thought pretty much since the beginning, this is an emperor has no clothes kind of situation. Oh, of course. Yeah. And I it's mean, kind of a, a symbol of power that they, he's able to make people say that he has clothes when he doesn't. You know what I mean? It's like they know this is wrong, but he still makes them say it anyway. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, but the second that they're outside of his orbit or mm-hmm. immune or in any way, like, not seeking re-election or anything like that, that's when you hear the truth. But mm-hmm. as long as they're inside that orbit, I, I think it raises a question, like, why still send people, you know, journalists? And we've talked about this before, I think. Why still send them to White House press briefings? Mm-hmm. Because you know it's constant bullshit from you know, well, Sarah Huckabee Sanders right now. Yeah, well, I, I will say, going back to the Stormy Daniels thing, uh, interestingly, uh, the, the story may have actually died down a little bit if uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders hadn't slipped up and admitted that they had, you know, she was like, and we won that in arbitration or whatever. But you're not supposed to say that you know what I mean? By mentioning that they had won something in arbitration, she was admitting that it was true. But she was like trying to say it like, oh, we won that. We don't need to worry about that. It's like, well, uh, oh, what arbitration? Because like, apparently the reporters in the room didn't know what she was talking about. Yeah. Sarah, you've said repeatedly that we've addressed our feelings on that situation in regards to the uh, Stormy Daniels payment. But specifically, can I ask, did the president approve of the payment that was made in October of 2016 by his longtime lawyer? and advisor Michael Cohen. Look, the president has addressed these directly and um, made very well clear that uh, none of these allegations are true. Uh, this case has already been, been won in arbitration, and anything beyond that, I would refer you to the president's out, outside counsel. When did the president address specifically the cash payment that was made in October of 2016? The president has denied the allegations against him. Uh, and again, this case has already been won in arbitration. Anything beyond that, I would refer you to outside counsel. Did you know about that payment Jeff, at the time, though? I've, I've addressed this as far as I can go. Payment. Did he know about the payment at the time? Not that I'm aware of. And again, anything beyond what I've already given you, I would refer you to the president's outside counsel. Has he Steve? talked to Michael Cohen yes. about that since this has become a news story this week? Yes. Has he talked to Michael Cohen about it, if I can just ask one more I'm thing. sorry? Has he talked to Michael Cohen? about that this week. So I don't know. So she basically confirmed what was happening by trying to deny it and declare victory. So it's like, you know, I see what you're saying. Yes, why send people? But at the same time, you get them talking long enough. I think that's an exceptional case. I think, yeah, you know, not usual. Nine out of ten days, you just get pure bullshit. And it, you know, and it gives people on Fox or whatever things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Democrats say this, but the White House responded and said this. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, well, there's a positive, you know, there's the, uh, the kind of, uh, we don't know, you know, what do you say? Uh, Both sidesism. Yeah, 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 that's that's pretty much it. So, but yeah, hmm. um, Bannon seemed to think China was a pretty big deal. He goes on to say, "China's everything. Nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. We don't get China right. We don't get anything right. This whole thing is very simple." He says, "China is where Nazi Germany was in 1929 to 1930. The Chinese, like the Germans, are the most rational people in the world until they're not." And they're going to flip like Germany in the 30s. You're going to have a hyper-nationalist state. And once that happens, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Hmm. So he's extremely concerned about China. Um, I don't know. In a way, I think, you know, yeah, I think China could be dangerous. But 
I don't know. I feel like, yeah, Spannon's well-read, and he knows a lot of, like, historical things to reference, but he just has such a grandiose view of himself and history and the arc of history and, like, the third wave, and, like, he's always, like, trying to make these analogies. Like, he's always trying to, like, draw comparisons. I mean, that's why Trump thinks he's Andrew Jackson. He, like, he knows a lot of stuff, but he's, like, I don't know. He's always trying to cast himself and everyone around him in this, like, grand sweeping historical drama, and it's just, like, sometimes you're just a bum- bunch of bumbling people at the control and that's all there is to it so <laughs> yeah yeah it's, yeah he well he has some knowledge but like he's yeah he's got a really he seems to have a warped uh a warped worldview in the in the present so oh for sure but i'm not saying that he's uh, wrong about china necessarily it's it definitely could be a serious thing to look at but i don't know comparing it to nazi yeah. germany is a little bit i don't know <laughs> really yeah, I think economically it could be dangerous right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. It seems it seems like Russia may be the more. I mean, Mitt Romney may have been right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Russia may be our biggest enemy right now. Yep. And yep. speaking of Romney and Russia, it sounds like. I mean, in this, I mean, in in a normal world, in a better world than what we have now, <laughs> the fact that it appears that mm-hmm. Russia got. You know, first refusal of our yep. of our Secretary of State mm-hmm. directly to the President. Throw the book at him. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that I need to have Mitt Romney as my Secretary of State, but at least that guy recognized the issue that Russia was dangerous. Oh yeah, probably why he's not Secretary of State. So. Absolutely, for sure. But yeah, that's that's pretty pretty incredible. But I mean, we all knew when when old uh, Rexon got the job, you know, that order of friendship from the Kremlin was was no small part of it. I'm, I didn't have any doubt even at the time. But now it's yeah, it's basically been confirmed by that New Yorker story. So um, but, yeah, well, I've been hearing a lot of people saying a lot of people are saying these days. You know, you're hearing things? that uh, Rex may be on his way out. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, I, th- I think I've heard Jen Kuger on Young Turks say that, like, mm-hmm. he thinks that, you know, the, the Russia, the oil deal that they thought was going to happen is not happening. And so Rex may be on his way out here. Mm-hmm. He wasn't able to get done what he wanted to get done. And I think, yeah, so. Yeah, I guess uh, Mr. Walrus Mustache, John Bolton, was interviewed at the White House this last week. So yeah, maybe Trump's warming up to him. Yeah. <laughs> As the pool grows, ever shallower people that will serve in this White House. So yeah, he said he was going to drain the swamp. He's actually draining the potential government employee pool. I think yeah, yeah, the pool of competent competent people who would be willing to attach their name to your administration. Maybe shrinking. Exactly. Yeah, we still. And by the way, in South Korea, we still don't have a uh, ambassador. No, you don't. We don't have. Yeah. So but get excited, Chuck, because guess what? There's going to be the meaning of the minds soon. Today, I have the privilege of briefing President Trump on my recent visit to Pyongyang, North Korea. I'd like to thank President Trump, the Vice President, and his wonderful national security team, including my close friend, General McMaster. I explained to President Trump that his leadership and his maximum pressure policy, together with international solidarity brought us to this juncture. I expressed President Moon Jae-in's personal gratitude for President Trump's leadership. I told President President Trump that in our meeting, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un said he is committed to denuclearization 
Kim pledged that North Korea will refrain from any further nuclear or missile tests. He understands that the routine joint military exercises between the Republic of Korea and the United States must continue. And he expressed his eagerness to meet President Trump as soon as possible. President Trump appreciated the briefing and said he would meet Kim Jong-un by May to achieve permanent denuclearization. The Republic of Korea, along with the United States, Japan, and our many partners around the world remain fully and resolutely committed to the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Along with President Trump, we are optimistic about continuing a diplomatic process to test the possibility of a peaceful resolution. The Republic of Korea, the United States, and our partners stand together in insisting that we not repeat the mistakes of the past and that the pressure will continue until North Korea matches its words with concrete actions. Thank you. Sir, where would that Tonight, be, sir? Sir, where would that be, sir? 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 Sarah, what are the considerations that are under discussion for the location that this meeting between the president and Kim Jong-un would take place? Yeah, as we said last night, a time and place have not yet been determined. Uh, we'll certainly make those announcements when more decisions and uh, more information is available on that front. considerations that are under discussion for where this could take place? I mean, you wouldn't, I take it you wouldn't want to have it in downtown Pyongyang. Yeah, and we're not going to uh, have those conversations between me and you and the press. Uh, those will be conversations that uh, take place at a much higher level and certainly outside of this room. John, could, sure. Like the South Korean National Security Advisor said that the U.S. responded positively to a South Korean request for a waiver on the steel tariffs. Can you tell, tell us where you are on that? Uh, as the president's uh, proclamation said yesterday, there were two countries that were specifically excluded, uh, and there would be the opportunity for us to negotiate on matters of national security with other countries, and we're going to uh, be doing that with a number of different countries. Yeah. John. Sir, does the president think that Kim Jong-un is sincere about talking about denuclearization? Uh, the president uh, is hopeful that uh, we can make some continued progress. Well, look, what we know is that the maximum pressure campaign has clearly been effective. Uh, we know that it has put a tremendous amount of pressure on North Korea, uh, and they have made some major promises. They've made promises to denuclearize. They've made promises to to stop nuclear and missile testing, uh, and they've recognized that regular military exercises between the U.S. and its ally, South Korea, will continue. Uh, the maximum pressure campaign, we're not letting up. We're not going to step back or make any changes to that. We're going to continue in that effort, uh, and we're not going to have this meeting take place until we see concrete actions that match the words and the rhetoric of North Korea. But he seems to have agreed to meet with Kim Jong-un of North Korea, which could go wrong in a number of ways. 
And, you know, it, it may be a good thing. It may, you know, there, there's a, I'd say there's a 90% chance it's going to be a disaster possibly, but I think there's a 10% chance that, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Kim Jong-un just needs some, somebody to talk to, <laughs> you know, maybe Trump does too. <laughs> and I, I have, I have a feeling they're both going to be trying to like, you know, preserve as much face as they can in the meeting. And so mm-hmm. at the slightest, you know, they're both going to be acting bellicose and like, belligerent and somebody's going to get offended and Trump will probably be pushing the red button, like slamming the thing on the, as soon as air force one flies out of North Korea or wherever the hell they meet. <laughs> so yeah. it could be a disaster, but you know, I don't know. You know, as they say, you, you, you don't make peace with your friends. So mm-hmm. I, I don't have much hope for Trump to make peace, but at the same time, like if he, if he was at all smart, which he's not. I mean, this, this is, again, this is getting into the kind of, if he was at all smart, he would realize, like, yeah, I could go in there and yell at him and, you know, cause a confrontation. But that's, you know, it'd actually be more interesting and it'd be more, and people might actually start taking me a little bit more seriously as a president if I did affect some sort of peace with North Korea or mm-hmm. the beginning of serious, you know, uh, kind of renegotiation of, of the border and of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of thing between North and South Korea. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a pipe dream. So, yeah, well, there's just no winning with the situation. Cause it's like, on the one hand, of course you don't want, you know, horrible nuclear war. On the other hand, we're trusting Trump to be, you know, the the deal maker that you promised to be that he hasn't shown himself to be at all at this point and you know like you said it's like somebody's going to get offended everyone's going to be posturing uh, you know and, and just having this meeting is kind of a win for you know Lil Kim because now he gets to be on the same footing as you know that has never happened with a sitting American president before where they've met so it's like now he gets to be this like world yeah. leader or whatever and it's like well thanks for giving him that I'm, with I'm no, a little you know, I'm a little bit less concerned about that. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's useful for him internally within North Korea, but it's not like he was about to be deposed, but then Trump met with him and his, he gained legitimacy. And so then he, he hung on to his seat. I mean, he, he, he's, he's there, you know, that mm-hmm. I, I don't, you know, that's, that's a very kind of an eph- ephemeral benefit or whatever. If it's a benefit to him internally, mm-hmm. then it's, it's a pretty, you know, esoteric kind of thing. I think it's, it's not something that I would be, I mean, to some degree, you know, that's the thing about Trump is that he's, if, if you, if you look for a bright side of it, it's that he's not in a way constrained by the kind of the, I, I feel like, you know, and we've probably talked about this before also, but like, I feel like a, when, when you're the president, you know, whatever things you promise during the campaign and whatever big dreams and ideas you have, once you get into the white house on day one, a million people sit you down and say, okay, we can't do this thing you wanted to do because, you know, we have 20 or 30 years of, you know, state policy that is this way. And if you do this, then that fucks that up and stuff. And it's just like, I have a feeling it's a very sobering experience. And of course, you know, Trump doesn't pay attention is not affected by what other people say if he doesn't like it. So, yeah, I don't know. There, yeah. there is a there's an outside chance for some sort of outside the box thinking. Mm-hmm. There's also the possibility. I mean, you know, Kim Jong Un is a small time local strongman in a you know despotic tyrannical regime, which Trump has a tendency to enjoy. Mm-hmm. So they may they may be on the same wavelength. I think in a lot of ways they are. But yeah, I think it could go wrong in a lot of ways. So, but anyways, maybe yeah, they should see if the Saudis will send the orb. 
and then they can touch it together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's maybe they can touch Trump's bald spot. <laughs> I don't know if spot really covers what's happening there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Ivanka lays it out for us in a later chapter. Yes. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Back to the book. Back to the text. Now, on the last page, on page eight, on the last page of the, the that chapter, it mm-hmm. says Bannon wanted Ailes to suggest to Trump a man whose many neuroses included a horror of forgetfulness or senility that Murdoch might be losing it. So there was kind of, at this point, Ailes has been forced out for, I think, sexual harassment, basically, from Fox News. And yes. He's still kind of battling Murdoch. And Murdoch will come back again later mm-hmm. for apparently accusing Tony Blair of having had an affair with his wife, uh, Wendy Murdoch, I believe, who was tied in with the Kushners. Mm-hmm. And apparently the government has warned the Trumps that Wendy Murdoch may be tied up with the uh, the Chinese government somehow, mm-hmm. which may be kind of like an influence campaign against him somehow. So, uh, anyways, I mean, <laughs> that's, the, that's the danger. That's why I can see we're, we're probably not going to finish half the book tonight is because every single quote in here, there's like a million things to talk about. Yeah. Maybe this ought to be a three-part uh, thing. But <laughs> You're going in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so chapter one, yep. election day. <laughs> so here we are, a year, a year and a couple months ago. Well, a year, a year, six months ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. So what do they say? They say Conway was now, Kellyanne Conway was now in a, Remarkably buoyant mood, considering she was about to experience a resounding, if not cataclysmic, defeat. Um, Donald Trump would lose the election. Of this, she was sure. So, on the eve of the election, you know, even Kellyanne Conway, everybody seems to have believed that this was not going to go well. Mm-hmm. It continues, she had spent a good part of the day calling friends and allies in the political world and blaming Priebus. Uh, now she briefed some of the television pr- producers and anchors with whom she built strong relationships and with whom, active, actively interviewing in the past few weeks, she was hoping to land a permanent on-air job after the election. She'd carefully courted many of them since joining the Trump campaign in mid-August and becoming the campaign's reliable, re- reliably combative voice. And with her spasmodic smiles and strange combination of woundedness and imperturbability, peculiarly telegenic face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so these are, these are long sentences. These are yep. a lot of big words in here. Imperturbability. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was another new word I had to look up. <laughs> <laughs> imperturbably, I know, but um, yeah, it's it's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But so she was, you know, she was already writing this thing off as a loss and looking for a job on TV. Right. Basic and blaming Rance Priebus for right for the loss. Well, but as they say, as he says in the book, this really was kind of a good scenario for everyone if if Trump did lose, because it would just mean that they all their statuses would be elevated, and then you know they can move on to something else. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, they continue talking about Conway and Trump, and uh, well, let's see, Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon. They say on page ten, the the unspoken agreement amongst them, among them, not only would Donald Trump not be president, he probably 
Uh, he should probably not be. <laughs> Conveniently, the former conviction meant that nobody had to deal with the latter issue. <laughs> so they assumed that because he was not going to be the president, they wouldn't have to deal with the fact that he shouldn't be the president, and they could just keep working. <laughs> Ugh, and uh, Trump, Trump said to Sam Nunberg, who has you know mm-hmm. went went like went down like a shooting star on TV the other last week. Mm-hmm. And so now let's go to Sam Nunberg. He's here with me tonight on set, former Trump campaign advisor. Sam, thank you. Thank you. Very, well, you know, I was a campaign advisor from 2011 to 2015 when everybody was laughing at Donald Trump. So, so for you were Sarah, campaign advisor from 2011, so he was, he was yeah, thinking so about for running Sarah, for that long? It was that expensive? Yeah, I said for Sarah Huckabee to start criticizing me, I would say, and I know, what, and I know you may not like it the way I say it, she should shut her fat mouth. I because, don't like that at all. I find that you know completely irrelevant. It's irrelevant, but I understand. But right, yeah, you can comment on the but she says I'm she bizarre. Says. I'm bizarre. Yeah, she, it's pretty bizarre what her, what her father does. That's, to me, it's pretty bizarre. Okay. But, okay, we won't get into it. Fine. Okay. No, 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 no. I, I, I don't. I actually don't think she used the word um, bizarre. She said, "I think he definitely doesn't know that for sure because he's incorrect." I don't know. There for was sure. no I, I don't know She's it talking for sure. about whether wrongdoing was. I don't think she used the word bizarre at all to refer to you. Just, no, just to but but she had her people do it from background for for the interview. Okay, but what does her appearance have to do with it? I just, I just want to be direct about that. Oh no no I didn't mean I didn't mean about I, I, no I meant that she should shut her mouth about talking about me. That's what I meant, not about her appearance. Okay, so so look, I, I wasn't planning on asking about this this early in the interview, but because yes, you, you talked about her fat mouth, I want to I want to ask you about this because it is important. You've done six interviews in the past four hours, right? Six? You've been busy. Maybe six, six is yeah. our count. Okay, so so look, um, you know, bizarre was a word that some White House officials were using to describe some of your interviews. Nuts is another one. Okay, really? so that's where the no, word uh, came from. So that's you, probably where you got it. But you know, Aaron. But, but Aaron, I would like whoever said that to say it on the record. Okay, but let me ask you this. Yes. Um, because you know, you, you you talked about her fat mouth. You called her a fat slob in another interview that you did on New York One. Um, I reached out to a Trump ally before you came on to say, "What's your? What do you think about Sam? What would you say?" And essentially, this person told me, "I just want to be direct because he's not the only one to say it." Yeah. You're drunk or off your meds. <laughs> At least half a dozen other CNN reporters have received similar messages. What do you say very, to them? That, I mean, is this a hit job or is there I, something I, I, wrong? I, no, I don't care what they say. I think it's funny. You know what? I really could care less what the, what the Trump White House has to say about me. They have a president, as you know. What was your poll that you produced last week, Aaron? What is he at, 38%? You're talking about his approval rating. Yeah, his approval rating. So any of them... To criticize me, I could tell you, if Roger and me were in there, Trump would be at 55%. Roger Stone. Yes, Roger Stone. So what, what, whatever they want to say, they could say whatever they want about me. I don't care. Once again, I would say they're doing a terrible job for him. And they've been doing a terrible job in perpet- They've been doing a terrible job since he's mm-hmm. been elected. Are they trying to do some coordinated hit job on you by reaching out to reporters? I'm saying really... those things about your state of mind today. I don't or, know. I don't know. This not. is the first thing I've. This is the first time I've heard about this. They, they're more than. They can do whatever they want. Well, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to it because it is something people are talking about, and I think it's important they have a chance to respond to it, Sam. Um, I, I would once again say that Sarah Huckabee is a terrible press officer. That Trump has a 38 percent approval rating. Mm-hmm. That. The Republicans are going to lose the House 
in the midterms, and that's a fact. And they can say whatever they want about me. They've treated Roger and me terribly. Now, Roger won't say that. Roger. No, he won't. As a matter of fact, that's not what he said at all today. He referred when we reached out to him about what you've been saying, right, that he's been treated terribly. I'm just going to look yeah, here for his exact quote. Uh, he said... Um, that I was briefly part of the Trump campaign and have been the Trump, the president's friend and advisor for decades. So yeah, he, he has he been. Didn't the, at all say that he's been treated yeah, and he, and, by and, the but president. he was, but he was. And the minute, the minute your former colleague, by the way, it's a, it, by the way, to me, it's a joke that your network hired him. But the minute your former colleague, um, your former colleague was hired. Who are who are you talking about? Corey Lewandowski. Okay. Okay. Former minute, campaign chief. Former campaign chief. Yeah, mm -hmm. campaign chief. Uh, which was a joke in itself. I mean, after he was going to get fired from uh, from uh, AFP in New Hampshire, but the minute he was the minute he, he was hired, there were two separate rules for people like Roger and me, and people like Lewandowski. Now I can tell you, as we've discussed before, I came up with the wall. I came up with a lot of that messaging. Corey didn't come up with anything except what the do you mean rallies. two separate sets of rules? There were two separate rules. He, he, Trump decided that he was always going to treat Roger and me in a very bad way. And he was going to treat Corey, his special Corey, in a different way because he valued him more. Mm -hmm. Now, that could have been something I've learned after working for him, but, I mean, yeah. Why, why is Roger not giving the same message as you are tonight, then? Why is I don't, he not I don't know. That? I don't know, and I haven't spoken to him in a week. I don't know. Which, you know, I underlined this. I, I wasn't even entirely clear who Sam Numberg was when I was reading it, but I underlined. So, Sam, I have to ask you one other thing. Yes, ma'am. And it's an awkward question to ask, but, you know, I've, I've interviewed yes. you before. You're sitting very close to me. Yes. We talked earlier about what people in the White House were saying about you. Yeah. Talking about whether you, you, were, you were drinking or on drugs or whatever they, uh, had happened today. Um, talking to you, yeah. I have smelled alcohol on your breath. Well, I, I have not had a drink. You haven't had a drink, so that's no. not... No. So I, I just, because it is the talk out there, again, I know it's awkward. Let me just get, give you the questions. Well, you can uh, categorically answer that. No, nope, you have you had my a drink answer, today? My answer is no. I have not. Anything else? No. 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 Besides my meds. Okay. Antidepressants. Is that okay? No, I, th I mean, I'm not, I'm just trying to understand. Well, look, well, look, they can say, today. they can say whatever they want. I don't really care what, once again. They're pathetic. Their, their president has a 33% approval rating. What, what, what was the rating number you guys released? I don't know the exact number. It was in the 30s. It was in the 30s. So whatever they want to say about me, that's fine. Once again, Roger is very nice. Roger has a relationship with the president. Roger is very loyal to the president. I don't care. Okay. Okay? I'm the one who was treated terribly by him. And I'll say that a thousand times. So yes. whatever they want to say, that's they've tried to use that against me. You know, they, they, this was this was their big thing. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I didn't steal from the campaign. Okay, I didn't. I didn't have. An, I didn't have an illicit affair with a married man. You know, I, all I did was work for him for four and a half years. And now I get this crap. And now I get this crap after you know legal bills. Trump said, I can be the most famous man in the world. And Trump told his on-again, off-again aide, Sam Nunberg, at the outset of the campaign. 
But do you want to be president, Nunbert asked, a qualitatively different question than the usual existential candidate test. Why do you want to be president? <laughs> Nunbert did not get an answer. <laughs> and they say now Trump, encouraged by Ailes, was floating rumors about a Trump network. So he was he was thinking about a TV network, yep, which, Trump, you know, Trump was TV. something we heard about. Yeah. Yeah. And down at the bottom, the, the leitmotif for Trump about his own campaign was how crappy it was and how everybody involved in it was a loser. He was equally convinced that the Clinton camp people were brilliant winners. They've got the best. We've got the worst, he frequently said. Time spent with Trump on the campaign plane was often an epic dissing experience. Everybody around him was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and they, they say about his campaign, the candidate who billed himself as a billionaire 10 times over refused even to invest his own money in it. Um, and they were trying to tell him, like, if we're, if we're going to have a real shot at this, you know, we've got to invest more. They told him they would need an additional $50 million to cover them until election day. And Jared Kushner said, no way we'll get $50 million unless we can guarantee him victory. Said a clear-eyed Kushner, twenty-five million prodded Bannon. If we can say victory is more than likely, <laughs> in the end, the best Trump would do is loan the campaign ten million, provided he got it back as soon as they could raise other money. Steve Mnuchin, then the campaign's finance chairman, came to collect the loan with the wire instructions ready to go, so Trump could couldn't conveniently forget to send the money. Um, let's see Lewandowski and Hope Hicks the PR aide put on the campaign by Ivanka Trump had an affair that ended in a public fight on the street an incident cited by Nunberg in his response to Trump's lawsuit <laughs> only the best people mm-hmm. only yeah, then, uh, then they talk. I, so this chapter is really just kind of talking about everybody's attitudes going into the going into the election, but before, when they thought they weren't going to win. Mm-hmm. And then they talk about Melania Trump on page fourteen. The silver lining of the ignominy uh, Melania Trump had to endure after the Billy Bush tape was that now there was no way her husband could become president. Laugh, laugh, down below. While nobody would ever say Trump was sensitive when it came to women, he had many views about how to get along with them, including a theory he discussed with friends about how the more years between a man, an older man and a younger woman, the less the younger woman took an older man's cheating personally. <laughs> That's quite a theory. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, at that point, they're just waiting for you to die so they can inherit the money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they... they, they <laughs> They have something to soak, soak up the anger with. <laughs> Maybe he has a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> um, continuing about Trump's attitude toward Melania, it says, He admired her looks, often awkwardly for her in the presence of others. She was, he told people proudly and without irony, a trophy wife. <laughs> It says, in in 2014, when he first seriously began to consider running for president, Melania was one of the few who thought it was possible he could win. It was a punchline for his daughter, Ivanka, who had carefully distanced herself from the campaign. 
With a never too hidden distaste for her stepmother, Ivanka would say to friends, all you have to know about Milani is that she thinks if he runs, he'll certainly win. (laughs) But the prospect of her husband actually becoming president was for Melania a horrifying one. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure she never uh, expected this. And then there's another thing down here. It says, the New York Post got its hands on outtakes from a nude photo shoot that Melania had done earlier in her modeling career, mm-hmm. a leak that everybody other than Melania assumed could be traced back to Trump himself. <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> yeah, this guy just, he, I don't know, he doesn't operate like most people, I guess. Um, and then, yeah, and then, as we said, he didn't really want to be president. On the on page 16, it says, The Trump calculation, quite a conscious one, was different. The candidate and his top lieutenants believed that they could get all the benefits of almost becoming president without having to change their behavior or their fundamental worldview one whit. We don't have to be anything but who and what we are, because, of course, we won't win. Oh, if only that was true. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, let's see. Almost everybody on the Trump team came with the kind of messy conflicts bound to bite a president or his staff. They talk about Mike Flynn. They talk about mm-hmm. various people. Um, yeah, Michael Flynn had been told by his friends that it had not been a good idea to take $45,000 from the Russians for his speech. He said, well, it would only be a problem if we won, he assured them, knowing that it would therefore not be a problem. (laughs) Uh, Paul Manafort agreed not to take a fee, uh, camping up questions of quid pro quo. So what kind of benefit was he getting from working for the Trump campaign? And it seems like some sort of debt forgiveness with this Russian gangster businessman or whatever who he owed millions of dollars to may have been something to do with that. Yeah, well, Deripaska. Yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Modern politicians and their staffs perform their most consequential piece of opposition research on themselves. Um... But Roger Stone, Trump's longtime political advisor, explained to Steve Bannon that Trump's psychic makeup made it impossible for him to take such a close look at himself. Uh, nor could he tolerate knowing that somebody else would then know a lot about him and therefore have something over him. So he, he was resistant to doing opposition research on himself. So, uh, on the next page, kind of finishing this chapter up, he says, Trump would be the most famous man in the world, a martyr to crooked Hillary Clinton. His daughter, Ivanka, and son-in-law, Jared, would be would have transformed themselves from relatively obscure rich kids into international celebrities and brand ambassadors. Mm-hmm. Steve Bannon would become the de facto head of the Tea Party movement. Kellyanne Conway would be a cable news star. Reince Priebus and Katie Walsh would get their Republican Party back. Melania Trump could return to inconspicuously lunching. That was the trouble-free outcome that awaited on November 8th, 2016. Losing would work out for everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so then, then he won. Melania cries, not tears of joy. 
there was a space, there was in the space of a little more than an hour, in Steve Bannon's not an amused observation, a, both a befuddled Trump morphing into a disbelieving Trump, and then into a quite horrified Trump. But still to come was the final transformation. Suddenly Donald Trump became a man who believed that he deserved to be, and was wholly capable of being the President of the United States. So after he won, his way of coping was, you know, he went through like the stages of denial or whatever, and grief, the stages of grief or whatever. And then he just said, oh, well, of course I won. I should have probably won. And, you know, I'll do great at this. <laughs> so giant dreams, midget abilities, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't want to read too much. I don't want to just just be reading, but. Yeah, any, any thoughts so far about that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same thing we've been talking about. It's just, you know, these people didn't cover their tracks or try to be at all inconspicuous about things because this was a, a lark from the beginning. And, you know, obviously once they won, obviously a lot of things came into, uh, into clear focus that they might not have had to have thought about, or at least they didn't think they did <laughs> before all this happened. So I'm sure if they knew this is how it would turn out, I'm sure they would have maybe not even done it in the first place but you know they probably would have done some things differently because that's that's why there's all these red flags that keep popping up is just because i don't think they even thought they needed to cover it because i mean if they lost who's going to look at them that hard you know yeah uh, people have compared that aspect of it i think to the the performance of the the producers uh-huh. is i guess a broadway performance or a, a movie anyways that I've, I've never seen but i'm vaguely familiar with it a little bit are mm-hmm. you are you yeah, I, I've never seen, I, I know what you're talking about. I've never seen the movie or the play or anything, but I know the concept. It's like they have to make a Broadway pl- uh, play so bad that it definitely bombs, but they end up actually making a hit by accident, and therefore they're ruined because of it. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, quite a concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the next chapter, chapter two is Trump Tower. Mm. And they talk about the relationship. They say Murdoch was fond of Kushner. They say Murdoch's fondness for Kushner created a curious piece of the power dynamic between Trump and his son-in-law, mm-hmm. one that Kushner, with reasonable subtlety, played as, to his advantage, often dropping Murdoch's name into conversations with his father-in-law. So Kushner was kind of using his other relationships to kind of pump himself up. There's a lot of stuff about Jarvanka pumping themselves up. Mm-hmm. Often, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. on the next page Trump perhaps not yet appreciating the difference between becoming president and elevating his social standing was trying mightily to curry favor with the previously disdainful media mogul and Murdoch finally arriving at the party he was in more than one way sorely late to was as subdued and thrown as everyone else and struggling to adjust his view of a man who was for more than a generation had at best been a clown had been at best a clown prince among the rich and famous. <laughs> so they, they were having a dinner party to celebrate his, his win. And yeah, anyways, mm-hmm. he was, he was late to the party in more than way than once, uh, mm-hmm. more than more way than one in that he was not a early supporter. And he was also literally late to the party. So mm-hmm. kind of clever. Right. Yeah. 
Well, and that's the thing, too, is that I don't think a lot of other, like, rich people, like, think much of Trump. Is that's, you know, kind of seems to be a, a theme going forward is that his whole shtick to people that, you know, on the outside is like, oh, I'm this great businessman. I have so much money. People respect me. And it's like everyone who actually has those things doesn't actually think of him that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's quite amazing. It's, it's a, it's a funny, it, it'd be funny. It'd be funny in a movie. But it, would be, it would seem unrealistic, but in reality, it's just yeah, total mess. <laughs> they, they talk about Carl Icahn here. They say in the year before the election, Carl Icahn, whose friendship Trump often cited and who Trump had suggested he'd appoint to high office, openly ridiculed his fellow billionaire, whom he said was not remotely a billionaire. So this guy doesn't think he's actually a billionaire. And you're like Trump's like I'm going to make him my you know secretary or something. And they just they describe Trump as twinkle in his eye, larceny in his soul. Which is a pretty that's a, that's a pretty funny characterization. I thought exactly. Uh, let's see. They they had to re- reconsider him. The campaign staff now suddenly in a position to snag West Wing jobs, career and history-making jobs, had to see this odd, difficult, even ridiculous, and on the face of it, ill-equipped person in a new light. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's really interesting to, I, th- I think it would be, you know, what would be an interesting podcast? Mm. We need to do a reading. We should do a reading club. You should do a reading club with a Trump supporter, a Trump supporter, you know, reading this book and just like, because the thing is they can bitch and moan and, you know, do ad, ad hominems about the, the author or what all they want. But like when they're actually reading this thing, like they're going to have to acknowledge that this, this rings pretty true. I mean, mm-hmm. this is how the guy is, you know, like, so if he's right about these things, what, what do you, why do you think he's wrong about everything else? Mm-hmm. Fake news. No. Fake news, people. Yeah. I guess that, I mean, the first thing you got to do is find a, a Trump supporter who reads. Yeah, I was going to say, where are we going to find one of those? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, they, yeah, they describe his, his actual demeanor on the next page here. They say, in fact, up close, Trump was not the bombastic and pugilistic, pugilistic man. Is it pugilistic or pugilistic? Uh, second one, I think. Okay. He was not the pu- bombastic and pugilistic man who had stirred rabid crowds on the campaign trail. He was neither angry nor combative. Uh, he may have been the most threatening and frightening and menacing presidential candidate in modern history, but in person he could seem almost soothing. His extreme self-satisfaction rubbed off. Life was sunny. Trump was an optimist, at least about himself. He was charming and full of flattery. He focused on you. He was funny, self-deprecating even, and incredibly energetic. Let's do it, whatever it is. Let's do it. He wasn't a tough guy. He was a big, warm-hearted monkey, said Bannon with rather faint praise. Uh, PayPal co-founder and Facebook board member Peter Thiel, really the only significant Silicon Valley voice to support Trump, was warned by another billionaire and longtime Trump friend that Trump would, in an explosion of flattery, offer, offer Thiel his undying friendship. Everybody says you're great. You and I are going to have an amazing working relationship. Anything you want, call me and we'll get it done. Thiel was advised not to take Trump's offer too seriously. But Thiel, giving a, who gave a speech supporting Trump at the Republican convention in Cleveland, reported back that 
even having been forewarned, he was ab- he absolutely was certain of Trump's sincerity when he said they'd be friends for life, only never to basically hear from him again or have his calls returned. Mm-hmm. Still, power provides its own excuses for social lapses. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going to be friends. <laughs> yeah, disappointing everybody. <laughs> I mean, he seems like yeah. so all in whenever he talks to these people that they're just like taken up by it. But he has no like, <laughs> he doesn't, he's not going to follow through on any of this. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I mean, you know, th- I mean, this is the kind of thing like when they talk about you can't, you know, psychologically diagnose somebody, you know, from mm-hmm. afar. Whatever. It's like, I mean, this is the kind of thing like everybody who's around him, like they're actually like he's not this like bombastic, aggressive person that he is in the speeches. He's actually really friendly. He's charming. He's funny. He's a little bit self-effacing. He pays attention to you. He makes you feel special because you're near him. And like, yeah, this sounds like a sociopath. This sounds like a psychopath, doesn't it? I mean, like, this is the the superficial uh, superficial charm isn't one of the that could be that could be a giveaway that you know as to his you know possible diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's I think it's funny that yeah these people who you know they don't they don't even think he's a real billionaire and he's like i'm gonna give you a job in the government (laughs) you're rich like me we have so much in common (laughs) i will never betray you (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's uh it's uh i I don't know have you ever been around somebody like that's like you know somewhat wealthy a little bit flighty a little bit like I don't know, somewhat superficially charming. Have you ever been like around somebody like that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there, there's a type I would say. So mm. I think I can understand like, I, th- I think I know what it's like being around this guy to some degree. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he's probably like whining and dining everybody, taking a lot of people to places that they would never, you know, be able to afford to go on their own or something. They're like, Oh, this is just how he lives. And yeah, I guess he's a little bit flighty or something, but I mean, gosh, I don't know. You know, he's got a lot of friends and, you know, he's very busy and social and, you know, so he doesn't have all the time for me. But, and, and the whole time there's this kind of like this, you know, just a very superficial, just level of charm. That's kind of, you know, mm-hmm. a, a mile wide and an inch deep, basically. Yeah. Well, everybody, uh, I'm always amazed when I hear people talk like this, but I guess it must be true. But they're always like, oh, he'll make you feel like you're so interesting and you're the only person in the world and has follow-up questions. And it's like, okay, I don't see that reflected in any other part of his life. But I guess maybe if you're like right in front of him and he's focusing all his attention on you, maybe it feels a certain way, but I don't know. I just, uh, it just seems so transparently, you know, like a huckster from, you know, where I'm sitting. But, you know, maybe it seems different if you're right up close to it who knows but yeah it, it would be interesting i i think if, if you're talking about something that's probably interesting to him or if you have something he can get from you he probably is interested in. mm-hmm. it sounds like if you're trying to tell him something or teach him something that he's not very interested in he shuts down pretty quickly i think so yeah exactly well let's see continuing here on page page 23 uh, for Steve Bannon, Trump's unique political virtue was an, as an alpha male, maybe the last of the alpha males, a 1950s man, a rat pack type, a character out of Mad Men. Trump's understanding of his own essential nature was even more precise. 
Once, coming back on his plane with a billionaire friend who had brought along a foreign model, Trump, trying to move in on his friend's date, urged to stop in Atlantic City. He would provide a tour of his casino. His friend assured the model that there was nothing to recommend Atlantic City. It was a place overrun by white trash. What is this white trash? asked the model. They're people just like me, said Trump, only they're poor. (laughs) That almost could have been a campaign slogan. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it continues later. Um, He simply had no scruples. He was a rebel, a disruptor, and living outside the rules, contemptuous of them. A close Trump friend, who was also a good Bill Clinton friend, found them eerily similar. Except that Clinton had a respectable front, and Trump did not. <laughs> so, that's an interesting, and that I think that's that was a you know something I underlined because it made me think you know, and I, uh, we've we've definitely had a very big reevaluation of Bill, the legacy of Bill Clinton over the past mm-hmm. year or two. I would say. Oh yeah. Um, so, but I, I don't know. Do you, what do you think of that? Do you think like Bill Clinton is just the same as Donald Trump, but Bill Clinton can you know? can be, I don't know, he could turn on something for other people that Trump can't or that he has like a respectable version of himself that he can put forward and Trump doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I think I I, I see what they're saying at the the core. Like he definitely uh, likes to get his hand caught in the cookie jar or whatever. (laughs) But I feel like Bill Clinton always had a thing about him where it's like he wanted to be, you know, respectable like they're saying. And I don't really think Trump has any concept of that like i don't think he really cares about you know what what norms or or how things look to other people i I just don't think he cares about that whereas i think that bill clinton at least tried to at least pretend like he was playing by the rules you know what i mean so well i think i I think trump does want respect i think more than anything else he wants you know people's respect but he doesn't want to do he doesn't want to put in any of the work that would require (laughs) yeah oh by the way i've been watching uh we've been seeing this uh american crime story thing Mm -mm. uh with uh, the assassination of Johnny Versace is the season two thing right now. I think they've got like a couple episodes left. Oh, no, I, I didn't. Good. Is this the same thing where they did the OJ trial? Yeah, last year was the OJ trial. This year it's the, oh. the Andrew Andrew Cunanan. No, no, I I heard it was it was going to be about Katrina or something. Um, I think that's going to be season three. Of oh, it. is it? It's, okay. it's quite a good show. I would say I strongly recommend it. Well, cool. yeah, I really liked the uh, OJ one, so yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, but but that's the thing you get with this guy too is that he like he was definitely like a social climber and stuff, and he was very concerned that everybody thought that he was you know that he had very important friends that his family was more important in some ways than perhaps. It really was as far as like their stand social standing and you know he would like he would be you know basically dating for money with older men and then he would be taking all that money and just never saving it but just like splurging on things and like treating all of his younger friends and boyfriends and stuff and mm-hmm. and just and people would try to like tell him to like why don't you go to college i'll give you money to go to college and stuff and he's like no 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 I don't, i'm not gonna do that and stuff and, he just, you know, he wanted to be respectable, but he didn't want to do like the bare minimum number of things that he would have to do to, 
get the kind of you know long term respect that he yeah. craved. I guess exactly. So definitely some parallels there. I think. Oh, for sure. And he killed five men. <laughs> <laughs> well, Trump could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, right? <laughs> yeah, he's still got three years. <laughs> it's still time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. He may shoot somebody in the middle of the Oval Office. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's see. Well, um, on page 23, well, continuing, let's see. Um, Trump liked to say that one of the things that made life worth living was getting your friend's wives into bed. In pursuing a friend's wife, he would try to persuade the wife that her husband was perhaps not what she thought. Then he'd have the security ask the friend into his office. Once the friend arrived, Trump would engage in what was, for him, more or less constant sexual banter. Do you like having sex with your wife? How often? You must have had a better fuck than your wife. Tell me about it. I have girls coming in from Los Angeles at 3 o'clock. We can go upstairs and have a great time. I promise. And all the while, Trump would have his friend's wife on the speakerphone listening in. So sleazy. Yeah, I, I just can't believe that Like none of these people have come forward. I mean, sure, it's humiliating, but, I, you know. I don't know. I can't believe these people haven't come forward and said, yeah, this is the kind of shit that he got up to. Yeah, exactly. It's like he's the most blackmailable person in the world. I'm just surprised more stuff hasn't come out. Yeah. Well, I'm sure his lawyer was writing all kinds of checks for him before the... Before just the, out of the goodness of his, of his heart. <laughs> yeah. The, the nicest lawyer you'd ever, yeah. ever heard of. Exactly. I gotta get this lawyer on my team. <laughs> Yeah. Um, let's see. In the next page, he had somehow won the race for president, but his brain seemed incapable of performing what would be essential tasks in his new job. He had no ability to plan and organize and pay attention and switch focus. He had never been able to tailor his behavior to what the goals at hand reasonably required. On the most basic level, he simply could not link cause and effect which is definitely something that we've seen almost in every crisis. Mm -hmm. He just doesn't understand why things happen to him or why things go a certain way. So Mm -hmm. they continue the charge that Trump colluded with the Russians to win the election, which he scoffed at was in the estimation of some of his friends, a perfect example of his inability to connect the dots. (laughs) Uh, Shortly after the election, his friend Ailes told him with some urgency You've got to get right on Russia. Even exiled from Fox News, Ailes still maintained a fabled intelligence network. He warned Trump of potentially damaging material coming his way. You need to take this seriously, Donald. Jared has this, said uh, Happy Trump. It's all worked out. <laughs> how's, how's he going to fix this without a security clearance? <laughs> yeah, apparently it was not. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, on page 26, yeah, Reince Priebus noted with alarm how often Trump offered people jobs on the spot, many of whom he had never met before, for positions whose importance Trump did not particularly understand. Um, Ailes had a suggestion. Speaker Boehner. Who's that? Asked Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who, why would why would you need to know that name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, Frank Sinatra was wrong, said David Bossy, one of Trump's longtime political advisors. If you can make it in New York, you can't necessarily make it in Washington. Uh, his sons, Don Jr. and Eric, behind their backs, known to Trump insiders as Uday and Kusay, mm-hmm. after the sons of Saddam Hussein, wondered if there couldn't somehow be two parallel White House structures, one dedicated to their father's big-picture views, personal appearances, and salesmanship, and the other concerned with day-to-day management issues. So I think we've been calling them Uday and Kusay for a couple of years. <laughs> apparently, internally, within the White House, that's what they're known as. Too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's see. Um, let's see. Who does he, who does he want? He wanted. Uh, he wanted somebody. He wanted. Was it Tom Barack? Who was this guy? Tom mm-hmm. Barack, I think, was his name. Uh, he'd asked him to be in the administration in some capacity, but but Barack, even after countless pleading and and cajoling phone calls from Trump, finally had to disappoint his friend, telling him, "I'm just too rich." He would never he would never be able to untangle his holdings and interests, including big investments in the Middle East, in a way that would satisfy ethics watchdogs. Trump was unconcerned or in denial about his own business conflicts, but Barack saw nothing but hassle and cost to himself. Um, Corey Lewandowski, Corey Lewandowski called Jared the Butler. Trump had come to believe that his son-in-law, in part because he seemed to had come to believe. Okay, Trump had come to believe that his son-in-law, in part because he seemed to understand how to stay out of his way, was un- uniquely sagacious. In defense of in defiance of law and tone and everybody's disbelieving looks, he the president seemed intent on surrounding himself in the White House with his family. Um, finally, it was the right wing diva and Trump supporter Ann Coulter who took the president elect aside and said, "Nobody is apparently telling you this, but you can't. You just can't hire your children." Oh wow! When, when I'm on the same side as Ann Coulter, it's it's a it's a weird day. It's a dark day in hell. Yeah. Yeah. Fake news. I can hire my family. You see. <laughs> yeah. Um, after a great deal of pressure, he at least agreed not to make his son-in-law the chief of staff. Not officially, anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so apparently, he was pushing for. Uh, Jared Kushner to be the chief of staff. Um, says the next section, Christie, Chris Christie, like most Trump allies, fell in and out of favor. In the final weeks of the campaign, Trump contemptuously measured Christie's increasing distance from his losing enterprise, and then with victory, his eagerness to get back in. Um, Let's see. Trump had been Trump had long been competitive with and in awe of the Las Vegas gaming mogul Steve Wynn, whom Trump would name finance chairman of the RNC. And of course, just a few weeks ago, Wynn was uh, removed from his own company and charged with I don't know something uh, pretty bad. Actually, can you remember the details of that story? I believe it was some sort of sexual harassment of some sort. But 
yeah, I think he's been pretty much removed from the RNC, and I think he's been removed from his own group, too. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you really got to screw yeah. up pretty bad to get fired from your own company, I feel like. But <laughs> Well, he and Weinstein managed it. Yep, they sure did. <laughs> Oh, um, did you did you watch the uh, the uh, what was it kind of like the uh, after the shooting and 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 the most the most recent shooting in Florida? Anyways, the uh, the town hall they had down there with Marco Rubio and them. Uh, yeah, I saw most of it. That was that was pretty nice to see him getting uh, slapped around by some teenagers. <laughs> yeah, I, I always thought it was a real missed opportunity when the one kid was kind of going after. Uh, uh, kind of going after Marco Rubio face to face and Stephanie was like kind of a little bit incoherent but to some degree. You can't blame him because he's just been through a trauma and he's, you know, <clears throat> speaking publicly against a pretty powerful, famous guy. Senator Rubio, it's hard to look at you and not look down the barrel of an AR-15 and not look at Nicholas Cruz. But the point is you're here and there are some people who are not. And I need to ask two things of you. Number one, Chris Grady, can you stand up? This is my friend who's going to the military. I need you to tell him that he's going to live to make it to serve our country. And then we'll get to the other one. Not only are you going to live to serve our country, you and you and all of you have a chance to change our country. Change not just our laws, but the way we talk about our laws. So absolutely. Thank you. And guys, look. This isn't about red and blue. We can't boo people because they're Democrats and boo people because they're Republicans. Anyone who's willing to show change, no matter where they're from, anybody who's willing to start to make a difference is somebody we need on our side here. And this is about people who are for making a difference to save us and people who are against it and prefer money. So, Senator Rubio, can you tell me right now that you will not accept a single donation from the NRA in the future? I wish I could have. I wish I could have. Uh, I wish I could have spoken. I wish I could have asked the NRA lady a question. I wish the NRA lady I, I could have talked to because I would ask her how she can look in the mirror, considering the fact that she has children. But you know, maybe she avoids what those. Is that? I'm sorry. The... I don't freaking know. That's okay. okay. The question is about NRA yeah. money. So number one, the positions I hold on these issues of the Second Amendment, I've held since the day I entered office in the city of West Miami as an elected official. Number two. No, the answer to the question is that people buy into my agenda. And I do support the Second Amendment. And I also support the right of you and everyone here to be able to go to school and be safe. And I do support any law that would keep guns out of the hands of a deranged killer. And that's why I support the things that I have stood for and fought for during my time here. More NRA money? More NRA money? That that is the wrong way to look. First of all, the answer is people buy into my agenda. You could say no. Number second, well... I, I, Guys, the influence quiet, of any group, on, we're gonna be here all night. the influence of these groups comes not from money. The influence comes from the millions of people that agree with the agenda. So the millions of Americans that support the NRA and who support right. gun rights. Sorry, Senator. Guys, 
Guys, guys, if you Cameron is yes having no. a conversation with Senator Rubio, I, let's I, let them talk. Listen, I respect, you can ask that question and I can tell you that I, people buy into my agenda. I will answer any questions you guys have about any policy right, right now, right now, guys, be quiet, be quiet, you know, you know, and I, will, be and, I, and I just think that ultimately, that is not our goal here. Our goal here is to move forward Wait, so hold on. and, preve so, so and right prevent So right now, in the, name, in, the name, in the name of 17 people, you cannot ask the NRA to keep their money out of your campaign? I think in the name of 17 people, I can pledge to you that I will support any law that will prevent a killer like this No, but I'm talking NRA money. No, no, because... Uh, uh, matter of fact, guys, I bet we can get people in here to give you exactly as much money as the NRA would have. But it's not, I understand, and you're right. Can you stand up no, and you right donate to that? that real quick? Okay, not a lot, but we'll get it. I'll you're, do you're, it. You know, you're right about quite that. a bit of money so far. Well, you're right about that. There's money on the, both sides of every issue in America. And where that leaves us in policymaking is to look at the issues and make a decision based on what we think is right. But ultimately, look, the First Amendment is as, is as important as the second. And therefore, you have every right to ask that question of me, and I'm here to okay, tell I'll you that I again, will stand for the things. Are you going to be accepting things. money from the NRA in the future? I, I have always supported, I will always accept the help of anyone who agrees with my agenda. But my agenda is, also, I'll give you a perfect example. Your agenda example. is protecting us, right? Well, I'll give you an example this very evening. I have told you that I support lifting the age from 18 to 21 of buying a rifle. My understanding, as before I walked out here, is that that organization is not in favor of that. But I think that's the right thing to do. I don't know what their position is on teachers being armed, but I don't think they should be, because that's what I think the right thing to do is. When I offered my bill to restrict people on the terrorist watch list or that have been on the list for the last 10 years from purchasing a weapon, they didn't take a stand. I don't think they, they certainly didn't support my, but I offered it. I will do what I think is right. And if people want to support my agenda, they're welcome to do so, but they buy into my ideas. I don't buy into theirs. Okay, so I knew that was going to happen. NRA, please just keep the money out of Rubio, okay? If he wants to run again, you Thank guys you, can. Thank you, Cameron. Appreciate it. Uh, but I thought it was a missed opportunity when Marco kind of evaded by saying, look, uh, I don't, you know, I don't buy into the NRA's line. They buy into my campaign. They buy yeah. into what I believe and stuff. And he's like, well, why don't you give the money back or why don't you not take their money? Can mm -hmm. you commit right now to like not taking NRA money? He's like, no, I'm not going to do that because they buy into my campaign. And I think the, the knockout blow right there would have been, well, Marco Rubio, what were you saying when, uh, when Harvey Weinstein went down and he'd been a Democratic donor? What were you saying about Democrats taking his money and returning it at that time? Mm -hmm. And you don't even have to prove... You know, you don't have to prove that he said anything about it. I mean, the news media will do that job for you, and they'll mm -hmm. go back, and they'll go back to what he said, and they'll find if he ever said anything about that. Right. And if he did, then boom, you've got him. You can say, well, you, you've said, you, you've made it clear that people buy into people's campaign, but they have to give the money back if the mm -hmm. other people do something pretty egregious. Right. right? Yeah. So you either believe that the NRA is doing something egregious here, or you don't. But you, you're trying to have it both ways, you know? Yeah, I did think that was a particularly ridiculous line from Marco Rubio, which is, he's known for making those. But, um, yeah, that's uh, that would have been a good thing. But, I mean, these are teenagers, though. They can't be that quick on their feet as, as far as dealing with these, uh, you know, sneaky politicians like that. So, But you're right about Steve Wynn, though. They've been remarkably uh, duplicitous even for them, you know, especially this on the heels of, like you yeah. said, the Harvey Weinstein thing. It's been like, where's, why don't you give back the money from him, you know, if we're going to ask for that, you know. Yeah, but as we've been saying on this show pretty much since day one, 
hypocrisy doesn't matter anymore mm-hmm. with today's political, you know, situation. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really not at all. Hopefully someday the American people will figure it out and, you know, hold, hold start holding Republicans accountable for this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm. Uh, let's see. Uh, apparently, before Trump had liked Chris Christie, and he Trump had even wondered whether he might be a vice presidential possibility for Christie. So in the past, he thought you know Christie might be his star to hitch his wagon to or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's uh, yeah. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Christie apparently. Let's see. Christie dropped out, and he wanted to be the vice president. Mm. And it had personally pained Trump not to be able to give it to him. But if the Republicans' establishment had not wanted Trump, they had not wanted Christie almost as much. <laughs> so he, he couldn't get Chris Christie to be his vice president. It was almost Michael um, Flynn. Meant- Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been more fun. Then we yeah. could have gotten rid of the vice president and, you know, triggered some sort of another constitutional crisis with this administration. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the, the potential for screw-ups and ethical and, you know, firings, in this, it, it's just, it's a its a target-rich environment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, the, then they, on the next page they mention about how Chris Christie had prosecuted Jared Kushner's father, they say. But when he was a federal prosecutor in New Jersey, Christie had sent Jared's father, Charles Kushner, to jail in 2005. Mm-hmm. Charlie Kushner, pursued by the feds for an income tax cheat, set up a scheme with a prostitute to blackmail yep. his brother-in-law, who was planning to testify against him. Yeah, I heard about this when it, uh, not when it happened, but I've heard, a, I've heard a retrospective of the case. It was some pretty wild stuff. Yeah, he like sent a prostitute to like seduce his brother-in-law and like tried to film it or something. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 some pretty pretty nasty family business. Yeah. Well, it's a pretty nasty family, so. But yeah, I did always think yeah. it was interesting that 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 kind of you know Kushner Christie connection was all running through Trump because yeah, I mean we'll get to it in a second, but this seems like possibly why he wasn't allowed to go further in the Trump camp is because the you know Kushner people put the kibosh on it. So yeah, the, yeah, they mention here next um, various accounts, mostly offered by Christie himself, make Jared the vengeful hatchet man in Christie's aborted Trump administration career. Um, it, down below, Ivanka told her father that Christie's appointment as chief of staff or to any other high position would be extremely difficult for her and her family, and it would be best that Christie be removed from the Trump orbit altogether. <laughs> so, yeah, Jarvanka strikes again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Miss yeah. Princess uh, complicit <laughs> strikes. Yeah. Yeah, pretty, pretty, I, I, I don't know. I mean, like, as chief of staff, who was his first chief of staff? I'm trying to, like, was it Reince Priebus, mm-hmm. I think? Is, is that Priebus, right? and then uh, there's Kelly now. Who was it in between? Yeah, no, no. I, I, his name's on the tip of my tongue. Who, who was that? Uh, let's see. Priebus. Because I, I believe it was a, a mooch. Who? Because didn't the Mooch yes. have something Star to do Mooch, with? He got them fired. And, yes, but yeah. then who was it? Was it Kelly right away? Rance, yeah, I guess it was. Wait, because like Rance Priebus got 
Rance Priebus got taken out by Scaramucci, right? That was what Scaramucci I remember. Scaramucci was gone a week later. Yeah. Yeah. It's all a blur. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was Kelly right away. <laughs> no, wait, wait. Let me think about that. Rance, what was the... It was kind of, It's kind of like that scene in uh, Reservoir Dogs where, you know, they're all pointing guns at each other and stuff. And, like, it, when it happens, it happens so fast that all three people go down immediately. And you're just like, wait, who shot first? <laughs> it doesn't really matter. But it's like, I remember, like, because you said, like, Steve Bannon, I don't want to suck my own dick or something. And then uh-huh. Steve Bannon was gone. And then he was gone. And then Kelly was in. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I'd have to consult the you know, chronology of that. It's just such a blur. Mm-hmm. I guess it was but straight I mean, to Kelly, yeah. Because <laughs> it was July 31st yeah, was like, the last day for uh, Rince. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The um, Well, I mean, I think to be fair for us to be so confused, I think the book makes it pretty clear that in a way, I mean, Reince Priebus was the chief of staff in name, but mm-hmm. actually there were kind of three power bases, including the Jared and Ivanka, uh, Steve Bannon, and then Reince Priebus, maybe third. Right, <laughs> so, right. Even though he had the title, it was not always very clear that he was, you know, had the full power of that position. So Yeah, exactly. Um, let's see. I think the next part they start talking about Steve Bannon here. Bannon was the heavy of the organization. Trump, who seemed awestruck by Bannon's conversation, a mix of insults, historical riffs, media insights, right, right-wing bon mots, and motivational truisms, now began suggesting Bannon to his circle of billionaires as chief of staff, only to have the notion soundly ridiculed and denounced. Um, in the weeks leading up to the election, Trump had labeled Bannon a flatterer for his certainty that Trump would win. But now he had come to credit Bannon with something like mystical powers. And in fact, Bannon, with no prior political experience, was the only Trump insider able to offer a coherent vision of Trump's populism, a.k.a. Trumpism. Uh, Murdoch, a growing Bannon nemesis, told Trump that Bannon would be a dangerous choice. Joe Scarborough, the former congressman and co-host of MSNBC's Morning Joe, a favorite Trump show, privately told Trump, Washington will go up in flames if Bannon became chief of staff, beginning a running theme, publicly denigrating Bannon on the show. Mm. Um, and I, that was one thing that's kind of been interesting in reading this book is because, uh, you know, Donald Trump, you know, before the election got a lot of criticism from a lot of people on the left, obviously, mm-hmm. for sucking up to Trump and, you know, letting him come on the show just whenever he wanted and talk for as long as he wanted, basically, and stuff. And then kind of turning on him at some point, or maybe Trump turned on him, it wasn't really clear, but you know, and became quite an anti-Trump guy. Mm-hmm. But with this book, you, you really get a sense that, you know, maybe maybe Joe Scarborough wasn't so much anti-Trump as Joe Scarborough was supporting a certain, uh, kind of a certain faction within the White House, which was mostly the Jarvanka group. And when that faction, you know, failed here or there, when they, when they, you know, when their people got fired and stuff like this, and probably Joe Scarborough is losing some of his inside sources who were his line, you know, to what's going on in the White House. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's been making him angrier, mm-hmm. perhaps. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, his involvement that, that has been interesting. I, I didn't realize he was so hooked in with the Trump people, at least for a time. 
So yeah, yeah. I, frankly, I mean, at the beginning, like everybody used that one thing where like uh, where Trump there was like they went to commercial break and there was a hot mic and. Trump asked like Mika and Joe, like, well, how am I doing? And they're like, oh, you're doing really well. You know, the, the numbers are coming back. And, the, you know, they're. What do you have after this? I make a speech, uh, get on a plane, make a speech. I'm working. Well, I tell you what, I tell you what, the Bloomberg poll, all, all the polls out today look great in South Carolina. All of them. Yeah. They look good. Well, well, so, but I'm being hit. You know, they're spending $75 million in negative ads on me over the last two weeks. Are they catching on at all? No. Not work that what way. do you think? Are they catching on? No. They're vicious. They're spending a tremendous amount on negative ads on me. No. You know what I thought was the um, kind of wow moment was the guy you brought up on stage. Yeah, that was good. Um, we played it several times this morning. We played it up against Obama. The both guys. The both, both guys. guys. Oh, yes. We played Obama first. The young guy and with the And then we champ. played the guys. I saw it. I watched your show this morning. Boom. You have me almost as a legendary figure. I like. Well, I tell you, this morning, what we what we basically said today was we were completely wrong about the totally. Debate. Yeah, I thought. I thought I did really well in the debate. Show, I have to tell you. <laughs> I didn't. Yes, Alex. Three viewer questions. You, you did not, right? Oh my God! I was like, he's melting out. I think his really? head's going to explode. I thought your head was going to explode. We were wrong. I did. We thought what? We your head wrong. was going to explode. Oh no! Yeah. no I thought <laughs> I did. Oh yeah. My daughter was. Don't screaming forget that. By, by the way, by the way, he told me he goes, I was having fun. Oh my God. <laughs> Right. We have one more segment. One more segment, and then we're good. Thank you for doing this. Okay. I'm doing it because I, I said nothing. You know, you get, you get great ratings and a raise. Mm-hmm. Me, I get nothing. We're getting a real window into your. So. Well. Just make us all look good. That's exactly. Oh, okay. Do you don't want me to do um, the ones with the, um, um, deportation? We really have to get to some questions. That's right. Nothing. Nothing too hard, Mika. Okay. Well, ours a cat. Look at that. No, it, um, I think that was, for most people in the Republican establishment, sort of the final sign. Looking good. Because we'll after this. Hey, we'll see what happens. I mean, people use that as kind of like the gotcha moment, like, aha, they're, they're helping him. They're secretly helping him. But I think it could have been just kind of like polite conversation or something, you know? I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were like colluding with him necessarily, but I, you know, there, were, there was obviously a closeness there, you know, so I think a lot of people were reacting to that. But, uh, but yeah, I think he's come out strongly against Trump since then, but then you start to realize from this book that, you know, when his faction started waning in the Trump White House, maybe, and, you know, I don't know, it, it's complicated. It's a complicated relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Do you ever watch the Morning Joe show? Uh, not regularly, but I've seen clips from it, yeah. I don't watch, like, the whole program. Do you do? Yeah. No, but, I, like, yeah, I catch clips on YouTube or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, uh, sometimes they're, sometimes they're funny. The, the whole gimmick is pretty ridiculous. Don't particularly like the way he treats, uh... Mika Virginsky on there, but hmm. I don't know. She's marrying him, so that's uh, that's their business now, I guess. But, uh, Saturday Night Live has done some pretty like interesting and good send ups of the Morning Joe show, where like 
Morning Joe and Mika Brzezinski are constantly about ready to rip each other's clothes off, and everybody else on their panel is about to vomit. <laughs> so, I haven't seen that. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> yeah, check it out. It's it's pretty. You might even add some a little bit of audio here or something because it's pretty funny. song who is that Joe you know who it is oh yeah it's me <laughs> that's my original jam welcome to the nut house I'm Joe that's Mika Willie Geist is here just smiling along good morning <laughs> we just played that song live last night at prohibition Mika was there I come because I have to you come because I tell you to God, can we not be this self-aggrandizing this early in the morning? You're disgusting. And you're foul. I'm gonna barf all over you. Let's get to the news. President Trump is at it again. Oh, He's uh, using a deeply offensive I word just, when describing what, Haiti and some African country. Can you just... Joining me to break this down okay. is chair for the Center for African American Studies at Princeton, Eddie Glaude. Eddie, this is a blatant example of inflammatory racist language. Why don't GOP leaders condemn this immediately? Well, first, because Eddie, you've studied this stuff extensively, okay? I mean, can you imagine any other president making comments like this? What's your take? I mean, well, I mean, this is not the first time that he said something like this. Is this a surprise given his comments in the past? He's talking about Haitians, he's talking about Africans, and the question is this, when will they get to speak? When is it their turn? How long will they be silenced? I personally... Glaude, great points. Thanks for joining us. been a tough week for the president oh, yeah. with the release of the sensational new book Fire and Fury. Joining us is the author of that book, Michael Wool. Thanks for having me. Now, Michael, this book is wild. The conversations are so intimate. It's depressing. I'm depressed. I'm yeah. depressed. It's, am it, it's amazing what you found. You say the president watches TV most of the day. He eats McDonald's because he's afraid of being yeah. poisoned. Is there anything that you didn't include? Well, sure. Probably the worst one is the, uh, the baby races. What? Beg your pardon? <laughs> There were baby races. Uh, Trump would ask to have two babies placed in his office, usually of different ethnicities. Someone would put a bowl of goldfish crackers on the other side of the room, and Trump would say, a thousand bucks on the black one. Is that real? Yeah. Now, Michael, there's been several errors pointed out in this book already. Do you take responsibility for those? Look. You read it, right? Yeah. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. And you liked it. You had fun. I, yeah. Yeah. Well, what's the problem? You got the gist, so shut up. You know, even the stuff that's not true, it's true. I knew it. Well, I knew it was true. The White House is a cesspool. I can't, and okay, I can't. Okay, you know, hey, this one, and, but, Mika's no, but, been at an 11 for the past point. year, you, okay? I think you're hangry, okay? Stop. This one's hangry. Come on. Hey, who? Calm down. What do you want to do for lunch? 
I don't know. Yeah, I know what you want. You're a steak Florentine gal. Yeah? Are you gonna feed me my meat? Because you're a dirty dog? You know I am. Rough. Rough. Michael, one person who is heavily featured in this book is Steve Bannon, who was just let go as head of Breitbart News. Here to talk about it, Steve Bannon. Thanks for having me. God, Steve, I always thought you looked like death, but this is death warmed over. Danke, Mika. Nice words. Blessings. Okay, so you guys know each other, right? No, of course. I got him fired. <laughs> Come on, I got you hired. Oh, you love it. Even the negative stuff, you love it. Don't love it. Don't love it. Look, no one gets the Bannon fired. No one. Uh, except hey. me. I did. I never said Don Jr. was treasonous. Yes, you did. Well, I certainly never said that he'd crack like an egg on TV. Uh, yeah, that sounds exactly like you. Okay, that does sound like me. Yeah, all right, thank you, good reporting. But look, the Canon magic is still out there. Steve Bannon, the Bannon Canon, magic, 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 magic. <laughs> King of kingmakers, Osmandius. The Bannon dynasty is dawning. Uh-huh, mm -hmm. and uh, what are you doing now? I'm working on a web series for Crackle. It's, uh, it's called Cucks in Cars, Getting Coffee. And I'm also coming out with a new line of uh, uh, wrinkled uh, barn jackets called Frumpers for Guys. <laughs> Springtime, skincare line, blotch. You know what, come on, you know you're done. It's over. Yeah, Steve, uh, you think they'll ever let you back into politics? Yes, and on the canon's terms, too, as a kingmaker. I convinced this country to elect Donald. And I can do it again. Already auditioning candidates, got some prospects. Logan Paul. Uh, Martin, Martin Shkreli. Uh, the subway guy, Jared Fogel. He's back, he's electable. It's time for America to slide down the banister. You know, Steve, I have to admit it, you did something amazing. You took the biggest long shot in history and you got him elected president. And you unleashed this monster of biblical proportions upon the universe. Michael Wolf, it's the sweetest thing anyone ever said to me. Thank you. I can't. Uh, me, I can't. Me. The America we loved is over and no one is coming to save us and no one can. Well, you know what? Let's go live by satellite to a special guest. I'm here! I smelled lavender and money. <laughs> Oprah, are you running? Well, I am a celebrity, so I'm qualified. But I'm different from Donald Trump because I'm actually a billionaire. So who knows? I mean, there's only one job in the world more powerful than being president. Oh, really? What's that? Being Oprah! <laughs> 
Thank you, Oprah. That was delightful. Thanks for being here. And live from New York, it's Saturday night. It's uh, <laughs> they they do a really good job of kind of like capturing the 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 the, the banter on that show to some degree. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, you know. I look at Morning Joe kind of look at, like I look at Politico, right? Like I, I read Politico sometimes if I want to get like the inside the beltway, in, inside the beltway, like what's what's going on in Washington, like what are the what are the real you know the people who are who live and breathe this stuff, what do they think of it? Which is you know kind of a deep state perspective in the parlance of our times, I guess. Mm-hmm. But you know those people are pretty pretty connected in and have pretty good sources, I guess, which, yeah, gives them a, you know, some, some pretty good clarity on some of the things that are happening that other people might not be catching at the moment. So. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me see. How are we doing on this chat? Ooh, this is a long chapter kind of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, let's see. In fact, Bannon presented himself even bigger problems than his politics, or he presented even bigger problems than his politics. He was profoundly disorganized, seemingly on the spectrum, (laughs) given what captured his single-minded focus to the disregard of everything else. Um, Might he be the worst manager who ever lived? He might. He seemed incapable of returning a phone call. He answered emails in one word. Partly a paranoia about email, but even more a controlling crypticness. He kept assistants and minders at constant bay. You couldn't really make an appointment with Bannon. You just had to show up. <laughs> and somehow, his own key lieutenant, Alexandra Priet, a conservative fundraiser and PR woman, was as disorganized as he was. After three marriages, Bannon lived his bachelor life, bachelor's life on Capitol Hill in a row house known as the Beirut, as the Breitbart Embassy, that mm-hmm. doubled as the Breitbart office. The life of a messy party. No sane person would hire Steve Bannon for a job that included making the trains run on time. <laughs> and then they go to the next part. Hints, Reince Priebus. For the Hill, he was the only reasonable chief among the contenders. And he quickly became the subject of intense lobbying by House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. If they were going to have to deal with an alien like Donald Trump, then best they do it with the help of a member of their own kind. Oh God! Yeah. Uh, with significant parts of the Republican Party uh, inalterably opposed to Trump, and so belief within the party that Trump would go down to ignominious, de- ignominious defeat, taking the party with him, Priebus was under great pressure after Trump captured the nomination to shift resources down the ticket and even to abandon the Trump campaign entirely. Uh, convinced him, convinced himself that Trump was hopeless, Priebus nevertheless hedged his bets. Um, he often came, he came out of his first long meeting with Trump thinking it had been a disconcertingly weird experience. Trump talked nonstop and constantly repeated himself. Here's the deal, a, co- a close Trump associate told Priebus. In an hour of meeting with him, you're going to hear 54 minutes of stories, and they're going to be the same stories over and over again. So you have to make one point. You have to have one point to make, and you have to pepper it in whenever you can. 
the previous appointment as chief of staff announced in mid-November also put Bannon on a co-equal level. Trump was falling back on his own natural inclination to let nobody have real power. Um, yeah. This ensuring both chaos and Trump's own undisputed independence. Uh, Jim Baker, chief of staff for both Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, and almost everybody's model for managing the West Wing, advised Priebus not to take the job. So that was that was how they got him, I guess. Yeah. Why don't we Why don't we do the next uh, four pages? Is that Yeah, yeah. Is that possible? Sure. That'll That'll put us at the end of this chapter. Then we'll be up to chapter three. <laughs> that, actually, if we do this as a, like a reading series, that would actually give other people a chance to catch up. If, if yeah. our, our audience members wanted to read along. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth it. So let's do that. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay, the next part. One, one instance of his revisionism and of the new stature he now seemed to assume as president involved the lowest point of the campaign, the Billy Bush tape. Bush, uh, Trump's explanation in an off-the-record conversation with a friendly cable anchor was that it really wasn't me. <laughs> the, the anchor acknowledged how unfair it was to be characterized by a single event. No, said Trump, it wasn't me. I've been told by people who understand this stuff about how easy it is to alter these things and put in voices and completely different people. Um, <laughs> which, yes, is something to be concerned about, but not what happened. <laughs> Especially not when you've already basically admitted yeah, that it was, you apologized uh, that it was locker for it. room talk. <laughs> it was locker room talk. Also, it wasn't me. It. So, so anyways, I was continuing. He, he was the winner and now expected to be the object of awe, fascination, and favor. He expected this to be binary. A hostile media would turn into a fanish one. Um, it was nearly incomprehensible to him that the same people, that is the media, who had violently criticized him for saying he might dispute the election results, were now calling him illegitimate. So he's saying that the, he seems to be saying like the fact that anybody would dispute the either you're going to well, I can't talk. So he's saying like when he was saying during the campaign that he would dispute if Hillary won, mm-hmm. and the media like made fun of him for that and stuff and called him like a dictator. But then he he won by cheating and by, you know, with, with fewer votes. And then people questioned it. And he's like, what do you mean? You guys said I was going to be in trouble if I questioned it. It's not fair. So, yeah. Yeah, that is a pretty interesting thing. And he definitely was laying the groundwork for that for months before the campaign was finished. Because I'm sure he was going to be like, if if he did lose, he'd just be like, well, it was rigged anyway. <laughs> then he won. It was totally legitimate. So. Yeah, I think that I was saying, I think that was all part of the plan was to lose and then to bitch about it mm-hmm. and then to get a cable channel <laughs> and use that kind of that aggrievement to like, you know, steal Breitbart and uh, Fox News. Uh, what can we say? Uh, market share yeah so yeah and it would have worked too if it wasn't for you meddling kids <laughs> yeah if it wasn't for the electoral college jim comey the russians the MCI. <laughs> yeah <laughs> donald trump who's just not returning my calls like he said he was gonna <laughs> uh, i'm sorry uh no, no vladimir putin is not returning his calls like he said he was gonna <laughs> yeah. it's a mess yeah 
here in the next part, uh, Ben described Trump as a simple machine. The on switch was full of flattery. The off switch was full of calumny. The flattery was dripping, slavish, cast in ultimate superlatives, and entirely disconnected from reality. So-and-so was the best, the most incredible, the ne plus ultra, the eternal. The calumny was angry, bitter, resentful, never a casting out, and closing of the iron door. This was the nature of Trump's particular salesmanship. His strategic belief was that there was no reason to, to heap excessive puffery Sorry, this was the nature of Trump's particular salesmanship. His strategic belief was that there was no reason not to heap excessive puppery on a prospect. But if the prospect was ruled out as a buyer, there was no reason not to heap scorn and lawsuits on him or her. After all, if they don't respond to sucking up, they might respond to piling on. (laughs) Bannon felt, perhaps with overconfidence, that Trump could be easily switched on and off. Uh, in some sense, Trump wanted nothing so much as to be courted. Uh, during the campaign, Trump said Amazon was getting away with murder tax-wise, and that if he won, oh, do they have problems. Now Trump was suddenly praising Bezos as a top-level genius. Um, on December 14th, a high-level delegation from Silicon Valley came to Trump Tower to meet the president-elect, though Trump had repeatedly criticized the tech industry throughout the campaign. Later that afternoon, Trump called Rupert Murdoch, who asked him how the meeting had gone. Oh, great, just great, said Trump. Really, really good. These guys really need my help. Obama was not very favorable to them. Too much regulation. This is really an opportunity for me to help them. Donald, said Murdoch, for eight years, these guys had Obama in their pocket. They practically ran the administration. They don't need your help. Uh, Take this H-1B visa issue. They really need these H-1B visas. Murdoch Murdoch suggested that taking a liberal approach to H-1B visas might be hard to square with his immigration promises. But Trump seemed unconcerned, assuring Murdoch, we'll figure it out. What a fucking idiot, said Murdoch, shrugging as he got off the phone. So, so nobody respects him. Like even the people who want him to do something for them, yeah, they don't respect him at all. It's just like, just do the things we wanted you to do. Exactly. Um, Mr. Trump said he'd never once listened to a whole Obama speech. Said one of the young people authoritatively. Uh, they're so boring. Said another. Um. Yeah. Talking about his business conflicts, up until now, Trump's view was that he'd been elected because of those conflicts. His business savvy, connections, experience, and brand, not in spite of them. And that it was ludicrous for anyone to think he could untangle himself even if he wanted to. After fanning the flames of his intention to disregard rules regarding conflicts of interest, now in a bit of theater, he would take a generous new tack. Standing in the lobby of Trump Tower next to a table stacked high with documented folders and legal papers, he would describe the vast efforts that had been made to do the impossible and how henceforth he would be exclusively focused on the nation's business. Uh, 
Yeah. So, I, and I think it was at the time that somebody had looked open, they'd opened up one of the folders and they just saw blank pages of paper. Yes. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just, a, I, I yeah. think this was that case. I, I could be wrong about that. That might've no. been a different incident, but yeah. I have a very, uh, very distinct picture in my mind of what that looked like. <laughs> yeah. So he was, that was the time he was trying to say that he was disentangling himself from business complications and look at all the words. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like like when Alex Jones has all his, his papers, his reporting laid out in front of him while he's spewing insanity. He's like, it's all right here, folks. Uh, I got it all right here, you know. We got the documents. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, I think this is okay. These should be the last two pages here, and then we'll wrap up for this one. Um. Uh, if this was true, then the nation stood at one of the most extraordinary moments in the history of democracy, international relations and journalism. Uh, this is about the Russian-Trump connection. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if it was not true, and it was hard to fathom a middle ground, then it would seem to support the Trump view and the Bannon view that the media, in also quite a dramatic development in the history of democracy, was so blinded by the by an abhorrence and revulsion, both ideological and personal, for the democratically elected leader, that it would pursue any avenue to take him down. Mark Hemingway, in the conservative but anti-Trump weekly standard, argued that the novel paradox of two uh, unreliable narrators dominating American public life, the president-elect spoke with little information and frequently no factual basis, while the frame the media had chosen to embrace is that everything the man does is, by default, unconstitutional abuse of power. Um, hmm. So I was thinking about this, like, is this kind of, I mean, it's interesting that he puts this in such a kind of like a, like a, he says it's, there's no middle ground. It's either, either Trump was colluding with the Russians, and that's true, and he's guilty, or the media is just uh, totally unhinged and going after him just because they don't like him, and it's totally personal. Yeah, I didn't. I just, uh, I, yeah, I didn't really find Michael Wolff's uh, observations about the Russia inquiry to be particularly insightful. I, I thought more of his uh, powers were used, uh, you know, just kind of getting in the heads of the people in the Trump White House. I don't really think his overall assessment of the situation was very pressing. And I don't know what do you think of all that. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I think that's one of the bigger pictures that would be interesting to yeah get into for sure. Um, yeah, I like. I I find myself asking, and I'll have to look into it. I'll have to, like, you know, Wikipedia or something and do some digging on him exactly about what his, I mean, is he a registered Democrat or Republican? What is his, you know, what is his, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, what has his take traditionally been? Because he, he seems to kind of want to ride the middle, and he definitely thinks Trump's an idiot, and most of the people around him are, you know, duplicitous, self-serving idiots. But at the same time, he doesn't seem to have much respect for anybody on the left either, yeah. to some degree. So I, I do kind of wonder, yeah, what what are Michael Wolff's politics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and I mean, in the in the cult of Trump these days, you know, if you criticize Trump then you're not a Republican, right? Like, mm-hmm. like almost by definition, it doesn't matter that James Comey's a Republican. He betrayed Trump, you know? So, and this is where it takes on like almost a cult-like status. I think. Oh yeah. Well, not almost. Loyalty, it is. <laughs> yeah. It, do, it doesn't matter what you've done for the last 50 to 60 years of your life. If you're not supporting Trump right now, unconditionally, mm-hmm. then you're a traitor to the cause, basically. And you've never been a Republican. Right. It's all, you know, left-wing conspiracy and all this craziness. 
So well, yeah, yeah, and you can see that in the way that Jeff Sessions has been treated over the last few months, you know. And I'm about as far away as a, of a fan from Jeff Sessions as you could possibly get. But I do find myself being reflexively like, uh, you know, <laughs> being like, "What the heck? Like this is a this is a Republican, you know, who was even too right wing. He was too racist to be a federal judge back in the early '80s, and that's like extra racist. <laughs> so it's like that's like you know a guy that I wouldn't for you know have anything. But I see Trump attacking him and you know Rosenstein who's also a Republican like you said Comey heck Mueller's even a Republican you know what I mean but it just doesn't matter if, if you're against Trump in any way you're on the other side you know and it doesn't matter what your bona fides are so yeah I, well I think like I, I think you know liberals have to be careful not to you know over glorify mm-hmm. certain despicable people on that side just because they've fallen out of favor with Trump at a particular moment you know yeah. and I, I think it's like something, it's, it's kind of like even in the age of, you know, premium TV or whatever, it's like there's a thing that happens in TV shows where, like, Big Bad from last season, suddenly he, he he's the only one who can help the, the heroes this season. So they have to form an uneasy alliance. He's still bad, but, you know, there's just somebody who's so much worse than him, and so you, you find yourself rooting for him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really get, like, like certain shows, I think I, I can kind of remember, like, uh, True Blood. I think I watched True Blood, and I think I, I felt myself getting kind of a fatigue with the show because they kept like expecting me to like, uh, you know, sympathize with somebody who had done irredeemable things in the in the previous episodes. Right? You know, and it's like. And so, yeah, I think we do have to be aware of that uh, cognitive weakness of humans, I guess, to, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend suddenly, and, and, and is really my friend. It's not just like they're, uh, it's a matter of convenience or I need to support them for constitutional reasons in this, in this particular fight. It's just like you have to be careful that you don't get, you know, sucked into, uh, you know, overwhelmingly supporting somebody who doesn't deserve it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but definitely the re-examination of George W. Bush in the wake of all of this has been interesting because he's obviously, he's not the biggest anti-Trump person, but, you know, he definitely has, uh, you know, distanced himself from from this and, and a lot of other neocons I've noticed, uh, like, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, David Frum has, has become, uh, you know, a, a darling of the resistance. And I agree with a lot of stuff he says, but then, you know, I have to pinch myself and remind myself that these people, you know, light us into a war and <laughs> you can't, that's not for nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's really, I mean, that's, that's a major thing, but that's almost, you know, uh, just one of the many things that they did. I mean, it was just a lowering of the conversation, mm-hmm. uh, demonization of the domestic, uh, opposition, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, torture, mm-hmm. you know, just a lot of stuff that's beyond the pale, but, but yeah, I mean, I read the Atlantic. I read David Frum. I, you mm-hmm. know, uh, what, what's that other guy's crystal, uh, oh, Bill, Bill crystal, crystal or whoever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Weekly yeah, standard. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I like seeing these guys on TV. I like hearing what they have to say. Mm-hmm. I like reading their articles, but at the same time, like they are part of the reason that we've been brought to this point as a nation, yep. <laughs> you know, the, the, the administration that they, you know, work for, is part of what brought us here. So yeah. yeah. Well, well, what do they say about Trump though? It's always like he's saying the quiet part loud, and they just were smart enough to say the quiet part quiet, you know, for long enough. And like the the you know dog whistles have turned into bullhorns, and they're like, you're not supposed to say that that loudly, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, and the neoconservatives were true believers, you know. Mm-hmm. They believed, you know, 
America Empire. Not in those words necessarily, but yep. this kind of thing. Um, the you know the pro-Israel, anti-Iran mm-hmm. stuff that was just so central to their whole thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, and Trump is not a true believer in anything except for you know the greatness of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if they, if they're wrestling with something, I mean, I think that's one of the things, and also. The fact that, you know, the respectability of the office is being, and the country is being, I mean, the the whole thing with North Korea and South Korea right now is, it's something that we've been talking about on this show for a long time, mm-hmm. which is the diminishment of America in the world, mm-hmm. you know, the lack of respect, and when there's a power vacuum, when America retreats from the world with the America First stuff, and, you know, the the bullshit about, you know, payoffs to porn stars, and what did he say, and are the neo-Nazis expressing their free speech, are they decent people, are there nice people there in the group or something when they're murdering people? It's like, well, we're focused on this bullshit, and, you know, guns, can we still have all our guns, and all this stuff. Uh, you know, South Korea has got a left-wing president, which I don't think is a bad thing. But the thing is that I've always been concerned with the left-wing in Korea is that they, they tend to have a certain naivety about the uh, North Koreans, I think. Mm-hmm. And they tend to see them a little bit too in too friendly a manner. And they tend to, to some degree, some of them tend to resent America. And when you have somebody like Donald Trump... I mean, South Korea realigns itself a little bit. They 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 tend a little bit more towards China, and they they tend to want to you know, as much as as much as uh, Kim Jong Un has been brought to the negotiating table here potentially by sanctions and by the threat of war and all this stuff. Equally, South Korea has been brought to a point where they're going to go talk to North Korea. Um, Mm-hmm. And I feel like probably, I mean, it'll uh, the fact that Trump was going to meet and speak with the North Koreans was announced by a South Korean mm-hmm. outside the White yep, House, right? Yeah, I remember that. And so I have a feeling is that Trump said he would do it, and these guys just rushed out immediately and said, okay, Trump's going to talk to them. And they didn't realize, like they said in the book here, that, Trump will promise you amazing things, but he may never actually deliver on them. <laughs> yeah. I think that they may, you know, the way that uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders has been trying to walk this back a little bit slowly. Mm-hmm. We didn't say when. We don't know exactly when. There's a lot of stuff we'd have to nail down. It's like, maybe Trump should have thought about that. My point is that, like, country, like traditional allies like South Korea, mm-hmm. you know, as, as Jay-Z once said, the world don't stop. I got to keep, keep on, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean... The world doesn't stop because because Mueller hasn't indicted this maniac and dragged him out of office kicking and screaming yet. Uh, you know, South Korea is moving forward. They're like, well, we may have to sue for peace with North Korea here because America is likely to get us nuked, yeah. basically. And, you know, and probably the South Korean president might have just said, okay, we're going to talk to North Korea. We're going to have talks with them. I don't care if the conservative South Koreans don't like it and they call me a communist here in South Korea. And I don't care if Donald Trump doesn't like it. He's abdicated any stake in this in this thing right now. So. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that, like, a lot of Trump voters don't understand. They just don't get. You know, they, they don't travel or something. I don't know what the situation is. They don't, you know... I'm not trying to denigrate them for that, but like, I mean, as somebody who's lived outside of America for over a decade, like, 
I don't know, you know, things out here are still happening and they matter. You mm-hmm. know? People live, people die, wars happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the, the soft power of America diminishes, uh, mm-hmm. you know, well, they, they think they can just cut, you know, the rest of the world out and everything will be great. But it's like, if the world is unsafe, that makes us unsafe. And if we aren't playing a role in that, that matters. You know, and I don't think people realize that, or at least not people in the Trump camp. I mean, they just think they can, like, you've called it Castle America before. And I think that's an apt description of how they think about the world. So, yeah. And I mean, I'm a history major, but I was not, I did not focus particularly on ancient history so much, but you know, it would be instructive for a lot of people to, I think, to consider the fall. Mm-hmm. You know, to some degree, they became very concerned with internal things within their empire, and they stopped paying attention to the outside, and they consumed themselves with petty fights and stuff like this inside. Not, not to say that the fights in America are petty, but I mean, some of them a little bit are. But, um, but you know, the world doesn't stop; it's still going. And if America allows itself to take its foot off the gas for three years here or something like that. I'm sure even some people on the left wing would say, that's great. You know, why do we need to have military bases in Germany and Japan and, you know, all these places like, you know, we don't need to do that. It's like, yes, we do. (laughs) For your whole life, they've been there Mm -hmm. and it's been called the American century. And if they're not there, uh, you know, I mean, like this whole thing about like occupying countries is bad. Germany, strong allies of America after total defeat and decades and, you know, 50 years, 60, 70 years of occupation, right? Like, that's maybe what it took. Mm-hmm. But they're good allies now. They have strong economies. Right. They are independent. Um, but so this, this, this kind of this anti-American empire thing is kind of like this whole, like, Glenn Greenwald kind of, uh, you know, America can do no right kind of thing is, uh, I don't know. It's something I, I don't know. You know, I think they're, America does some bad things internationally sometimes. And like, uh, I think the military can be a force for good as well as a, you know, kind of a problem sometimes in the places where it is mm-hmm. to some degree. But on the whole, I think it's better than having Russian troops or Chinese troops stationed in all these countries, which mm-hmm. is, you know, people don't, they've never seen it before, so they don't imagine it could happen. Yep. But I just think that that's something that, that, that that's the stuff that I don't want to say it keeps me up at night, but it's, it's something that I have to consider perhaps more than people you know, sitting in Mitchell, Indiana, for for example, might have to consider. Sure. Right? Not to, not to, you know, unnecessarily denigrate our hometown there, but. <laughs> well, exactly. I'm glad this part's coming near the end. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they won't have listened to all this far. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> oh, Trump sucks. Well, fuck you then. I'll, I'll listen to something else. <laughs> Turn on the Joe Rogan experience. How about that? <laughs> Later, y'all. Exactly. I don't know. I don't know what they do. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> but um, okay, we better we better wrap this thing up. So we mm-hmm. got we got another page and a half, and I'm, I've got to warn you, this is a lot of reading. So. Okay, go ahead. But I got my phone's got about twenty percent left on it, so <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm as cognizant of our limitations as I'm sure you are. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> 
Um, let's see. Uh, Trump's things that Trump thinks about himself. Um, I will be the greatest jobs producer that God ever created. <laughs> it was quite a smattering of issues before him. <laughs> uh, veterans with a little cancer can't see a doctor until they are terminal. Then the incredulity. I was in Russia years ago with the Miss Universe contest. Did very, very well. I tell everyone, be careful, because you don't want to see yourself on television. Cameras all over the place. And again, not just Russia, all over. So would anyone really believe that story? I'm also very much of a germaphobe, by the way. Believe me. (laughs) Then the denial. I have no deals in Russia. I have no deal that could happen in Russia because we've stayed away. And I have no loans with Russia. I have to say one thing. Over the weekend, I was offered $2 billion to do a deal in Dubai, and I turned it down. I didn't have to turn it down because, as you know, I have a no-conflict situation as president. (laughs) I didn't know that. I didn't know about that until three months ago, but it's a nice thing to have. But I didn't want to take advantage of something. I have a no-conflict-of-interest provision as president. I could actually run my business, run my business, and run government at the same time. I don't like the way that looks, but I would be able to do it if I wanted to. I could run the Trump Organization, a great, great company, and I could run the country. But I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I, wrote, I wrote a note here. 99% sure that this doesn't actually exist. The no conflict situation as president. I'll have to research that, but I, I don't remember any previous presidents mentioning that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like something that he imagined, made up, or maybe something that some sycophant told him that he that he totally bought. Yeah, right. Research himself, yeah. <laughs> I could do I could do both, but out of the goodness of my heart, I'm I'm not going to take all the profits I could be raking in. I'm just going to be your president, but actually not. Yeah. What a guy. Yeah. Then then the next part it says then then the direct attack on CNN, his nemesis. Your organization is terrible. Your organization is terrible. Quiet, quiet. Don't be rude. Don't be. No, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. Mm-hmm. I remember that quote. Um, yeah. And in summation, that report, first of all, should never have been printed because it's not worth the paper it's printed on. I will tell you that should never, ever happen. 22 million accounts were hacked by China. That's because we have no defense, because we're run by people who don't know what they're doing. Russia will have far greater respect for our country when I'm leading it. And not just Russia, China, which has taken total advantage of us. Russia, China, Japan, Mexico, all countries will respect us far more, far more than they do now under past administrations. Not only did the president-elect wear his deep and bitter grievances on his sleeve, but it was now clear that the fact of having been elected president would not change his unfiltered, apparently uncontrollable, utterly shoot-from-the-hip display of wounds, resentments, and ire. I think he did a fantastic job, said Kellyanne Conway after the news conference, but the media won't say that. They never will. (laughs) Of course they won't. I did think, you know, in this book it was interesting that he had such long quotes from Trump's speeches. And, you know, I think we're going to get to this soon, but he has the long quote from the uh, CIA uh, speech that he gave uh, a couple days after the inauguration. Uh, We'll get to that uh, that to be continued. But uh, I did Mm -hmm. did like that he included such long passages because you really get to follow the, like, word (laughs) salad that just spills out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's totally random. 
totally incoherent rambling randomness that yeah it's just yeah. like he interrupts himself yeah. when he's interrupting himself like it's like parenthetical yeah. inside of a parenthetical and not in a smart way no <laughs> like there are some people who can do that because they're just like such smart people that that's just the way that it sounds when they talk because they mm-hmm. you know they do go off on so many tangents that are relevant yeah but, but they can bring it home at the end and he just can't do that <laughs> Yeah, he never exactly. You've got to be able to like. Even when I'm reading some of these sentences, I'm I'm kind of having to like because of intonation. Like when you're you're reading spoken, you're speaking written word. You have to like. Yeah, there are you know mm-hmm. there there are sections in parentheses that are you know you have to change your tone and then you have to figure out where the final you know w- which one is going to be the the final point where you're going to need to bring it home with the tone you know what I'm saying like mm-hmm. and so yeah so reading this book even there's a little bit of that but yeah Donald Trump is definitely somebody who intentionally or unintentionally it's it's really sometimes it's clearly intentional but other times it seems totally you know, not like something he's trying to do. And that's, I think that's where he gets into charges of, you know, senility, which is apparently something he's terrified of. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, he has some issues there. <laughs> yeah, We'll see. But, um, yeah, so, so we've gotten through the first, the prologue and the first two chapters here. So I'm, I'm sure we'll breeze through a little bit faster next time, but, um, yeah, people should definitely read this book. Uh, it's definitely worth it. So, yeah. And if you start reading soon and go up, I don't know, three or four more chapters to chapter seven, probably you'll mm-hmm. definitely be caught up with us for our second installment of this. Oh, for sure. Oh, um, yeah, by the way, today, this morning at my 10 a.m. to 12 a.m. class, 12 p.m. class of elementary school kids, one of the kids said, like, uh, something, they were saying something about shit, uh, shithole or shit house or something like that. And I was like, where, where did you guys hear that? And I, I wrote it on Facebook, like, actually, I already knew where they heard it. And I said, was that from the president? Was that from Donald Trump? And I said, yes. And they said, what does it mean? And I said, I don't remember what I said after that, but I was pissed. <laughs> but, you know, this is, again, this is something that people, like, in a, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe people in America do see it. Maybe you do see it in elementary schools in America, too. But, you you know, a coarsening of the discourse, as they say, uh, is for our children's ears. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, what about terrible. the children? Yeah. And, you know, you know, these kids are going to be 5, 10, 20 years later, they're going to be voting and stuff. And they're going to be mm-hmm. thinking, hmm, America, hmm, that's that country where the president and uses bad language and stuff and acts like a child. <laughs> right? It's yeah. This is this is sowing some pretty dangerous seeds in the world, I think. So for sure. Anyways, well yeah. I guess I, I don't really have a lot more to add. I don't know. I think we've we've been pretty exhausted with this book so far. Yeah, for sure. Well I'm looking forward to getting through more of it. It's been fun, but yeah, yeah. We can wrap up here for today. So, anyways, we'll have a good day, and uh, yeah, thank you for the listeners. And I hope you, I hope some of you guys will uh, read along with us and uh, let us know your thoughts in yeah. one uh, capacity or another, one way or another. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, until next time, keep reading, people. So. <laughs> yep, yep. You got to stay smart in these times. <laughs> All right. This is Big Daddy Chata signing off. All right. Later on, Chat. Yeah. Later on. Bye bye.
If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgesshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.